good, good morning. Good, good morning, members. We're, we've just gone live here, so we are. Members, can you just mute there? Can you can you just mute there till we we're, we're, we're live here at the moment? A bit of background interference. Um, good morning, everybody. And um, we we have we we have we have a quorum, so we have. Um, okay, members. I uh, just want to remind you that in the meeting you can you can mute the microphones until it's time to speak. Uh, that, that just cuts down in the background noise. And also, uh, I'm on the WhatsApp facility here. If you want to speak, just. Uh, Send in, send in a message here to the WhatsApp group, and that's uh, I'll know then that you um, want to speak. Um, members, I want to advise that we will be receiving uh, an, an urgent, uh, um, an urgent oral briefing from the department on the uh, outbreak of ILT uh, across uh, several poultry poultry farms, and because obviously we're, we're concerned about that and. It could have big implications for for the sector here. So that's what we're going to get uh, first on the agenda this morning is an out, um, a briefing from uh, the department on that there. And as you know, the uh, the committee meeting will be recorded and broadcast throughout Parliament buildings and online. And uh, keep the, the the mobile devices muted and in airplane mode so it doesn't don't interfere. Uh, we have no um, apologies uh, today. Um, the uh, no chairperson's business, and in terms of the draft minutes, uh, there on uh, from the meeting of the twenty seventh of May is at page six, and the minutes for the third of June at page twelve. Uh, can I seek agreement for the um, f for the minutes? Yep. See a few nods there. There's no particular matters arising. Okay, members. Uh, just moving on here. I'm going to that we're going to have this oral briefing on the ILT outbreak. Um, uh, before we commence the the the, the main agenda items, the, which the scheduled agenda items, sorry. So, uh, so item five now is a departmental oral briefing, and I want to on the ALT outbreak, and I want to welcome by Starleaf Neil Neil Garland, Director of Animal Health and Welfare, Jim Lee, the Deputy Director of Animal Health and Welfare, Gemma Daly, Senior Principal Veterinary Officer, and Ignatius McKeown, the Divisional Veterinary Officer. And I'd like to invite the officials to brief the, uh, give us a statement on the outbreak of the ILT on the 16 farms that were reported on the uh, 8th of June, and then members members will be free then to ask some questions thereafter. So you are very welcome this morning, and thanks very much for attending at such short notice. Uh, many thanks, Chair, and good morning, members of the committee. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity to be with you here this morning to provide you with an update on the recent outbreak of infectious laryngotracheitis, ILT, in Northern Ireland. Uh, I am Neil Garland, Director of Animal Health and Welfare Policy Division, and with me, as you've mentioned, Chair, our colleagues Jim Blee, Deputy Director, uh, and veterinary colleagues Gemma Daly, Senior Principal Veterinary Officer, and Ignatius McEwen, Divisional Veterinary Officer. Chair, I'll begin by setting the context of the current outbreak, uh, and then we'll be more than happy to take questions and answers or questions that the committee may have. ILT is a disease that affects poultry, causing severe respiratory problems with increased mortality and losses in production. It is a common disease right across the poultry-producing world. It is a notifiable disease in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland. However, it is not considered as a notifiable disease in Great Britain or the EU. ILT is considered to be an endemic production disease, and industry has traditionally taken responsibility for treatment and eradication efforts. It is important to note that ILT is common in backyard flocks, <clears throat> but it is not normally present in commercial farms due to good biosecurity practices and vaccination controls in breeding stock. 
Since the 4th of May, there have now been, up until yesterday, 18 cases of ILT reported by private veterinary practitioners, with an estimated 270,000 birds present in the affected flocks. The last outbreak of the disease in Northern Ireland was in 2013. The most recent outbreaks have affected different sectors, including egg, meat and breeding flocks, with the majority of affected sites in County Tyrone uh, and two in County Armagh. Unlike in cases of avian influenza, vaccination for ILT is both permitted and encouraged, and thankfully the majority of birds affected with ILT will recover and become productive again in their production cycle within weeks from now being reported. Indeed, on breeding farms, industry policy has been to deploy a vaccination strategy against the disease. However, on broiler farms, it is recognised that as a result of risk assessment and their shorter lives, the strategy has not been widely adopted. There are no public health concerns with ILT and it cannot pass from poultry to human. Clinically affected birds would not enter the food chain or satisfy the strict anti-mortem inspection controls which require all animals to be healthy for slaughter in order to produce food for human consumption. Considering this and that ILT is endemic production disease with which industry has traditionally taken the lead with regards to control and eradication, the department as part of a long-standing policy will support and advise industry but does not plan at this stage to take direct action or impose restrictions on the affected flocks. Companies may decide, however, to take direct action and proceed to cull effective flocks as a commercial decision. In relation to trade, it should be noted that if deer were to impose restrictions, then there would be knock-on implications for inter-community trade with the EU. Trade with the EU requires freedom from animal health restrictions, so the introduction of disease control measures would, would adversely affect that. Provided no official actions are required to impose movement restrictions or contain a disease outbreak, which we do not consider necessary with this most recent outbreak of ILT at this time, general trade from Northern Ireland and poultry products to our home markets and intra-community EU markets remains unaffected. The department does recognise that the disease cuts across all sectors of the poultry industry. Therefore, we are facilitating ongoing discussions with industry to encourage collaborative working so that mitigations to reduce the disease spread can be implemented across the affected areas. Officials have been working closely with industry since the first reported case of ILT on the 4th of May. Uh, we've consulted with key representatives and are meeting weekly with stakeholders, providing epidemiological support, guidance and technical advice. DERA is also continuing to raise awareness about the disease. Key messages, particularly around the need for excellent biosecurity, have been highlighted by the department through our usual communication channels, such as DERA webpage, social media platforms and our text alert service. Key to this and what we realised from the outbreak in 2013 is litter, which has been identified as a key risk factor in infection spread. So we are advising poultry keepers to keep litter trailers covered and store litter for as long as practically possible before spreading it. With respect to next steps, the department, as outlined, has been consulting with industry representatives since the first reported case to offer the support and guidance as outlined. Officials will continue to provide frequent uh, expert advice and support to all those affected so as to minimise any further risk of spread. And we are continuing to highlight the need uh, for excellent biosecurity as a means of protecting the national flock. Key messages continue to be highlighted, as I've said, on our social media channels and normal communication routes. And officials will keep the situation under review in partnership with our stakeholders, affected flock keepers, and through cooperation with our colleagues in both DEFRA and DAFM. My colleagues and I would be happy, Chair, to answer any questions the committee may have. And thank you very much. Okay. Um, thank you very much for that, Neil. Um, so, uh, see, in terms of, uh, um, you know, the. The, the, have, you, have you any assessment of the potential implications of this for uh, us, our, our trade here, and for like the access and external markets? You know, have, you, have the department any assessment of the impact this could have on the on, on trade? 
Well, well currently, it's another disease that's listed within uh, sort of export health certificates or intercommunity trade certs. Um, the only um, rule that we have in, in terms of that current trade is that there are no restrictions on the holdings. And with ILT, we aren't imposing restrictions on the holdings at, at this moment in time. So there is no uh, effect on trade, uh, both in terms of our intercommunity trade with the EU um, or within the, the GB market. Um, in terms of third country trade, um, from an initial analysis, we, we don't think there's any impact at the moment. Um, third countries um, can determine their own uh, requirements for entry into their markets, uh, but at the moment uh, we don't expect there to be any impact, but we will keep the issues under review. Uh, but currently we don't see any impact on trade from this current most uh, recent outbreak. Yeah. And, and see, um, uh, see apart from um, advising, uh, advising industry. Is, it, is there any? What other types of level of support that can the department do, either on a practical level, or is there any compensation uh, that may be available for? It? Because I presume that um, you know, whilst it may not have an have an impact on trade, it, it, well, well, it, I presumably, but there would be certainly be costs on the the uh, keepers, on the, the farmers themselves. Thank you, Chair. I'll, I'll bring in Gemma in a second, or Ignatius, or around um, the sort of action and uh, the cooperation with colleagues on the ground in the affected areas. Obviously, at a departmental level, as I've outlined, we are working very closely with the stakeholders, offering that epidemiological support, uh, that cross-collaborative working across all the key sectors. You know, both in terms of those who are producers and, and industry. Um, there isn't, as, as, as I'm aware, um, any sort of um, consequential losses covered by the department currently. If the department at any stage did decide or did need to go down uh, the route of mandating restrictions or culling, then of course compensation can be paid at that point. Uh, but in the interim, as I said, traditionally this has been an industry-led disease, it's been endemic for Northern Ireland for quite a long time. Uh, but Jenna, I don't know if anything else you want to add in terms of uh, local support. Yes, uh, thanks, Neil. Let's just say that we've been in facilitation of a meeting with stakeholders, and we recognise because it cuts across all the sectors of poultry industry, um, it's trying to get everybody aligned. And industry have been very proactive in bringing up proposals for how they would manage litter on various types of poultry systems within the area and within sort of zones that they have come up with themselves between three and five k around those affected farms. So we facilitated by providing maps of that information to industry so they can look at the look at the areas and, and see their own farms that are affected and as i say they're bringing proposals forward that they um, are getting dear help to facilitate getting those proposals community communicated across the industry and get buy-in from from all sectors okay uh, thank you very much for that there um i'm going to just move there's a few there's other members who want us to ask a few questions here john you're first on the list john blair yeah Chair, thank you. Yeah. Um, th thank you, Gemma and Neil as well for, for that information. Um, <clears throat> the Chair has covered some of the issues there around trade and I'm, I'm grateful for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can I ask you then if, if uh, there has been any identifiable since the 4th of May change in the trend rather, rather there be increases of the rates of, of new infections or, or decreases? Is there any identifiable trend to that? Thank you very much, John, for that. I'll bring in Ignatius, uh, veterinary colleague. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this has been quite a difficult disease uh, to follow, more or less, how it has been spreading through the poultry industry. At the moment, it has been restricted to a uh, confined area, just uh, around the Dungannon area, more or less, and hasn't spread out of that area at the moment. Uh, but it's quite difficult to determine the method of spread. As Neil has mentioned in his uh, initial point there about the, the, the potential for spread by uh, you know the spreading of litter. Mm -hmm. uh, again, certainly that's one issue that uh, the industry are looking at and are putting proposals in place to try and deal with that particular risk. 
but that's uh, that's as much as we can say at the moment. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay, John. Um, William. William. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, in, in relation to um, this disease, does it affect mainly land boards, or, or does it affect chickens across the board? Um, from, from my knowledge, William, it affects all chickens across the board, and is primarily and obviously only in poultry. Uh, but Gemma, is there anything else you want to add? No, it does. It affects all sectors. Um, and William, I say all sectors have been affected, affected so far. There's been laying flocks, breeding flocks, and broiler flocks have all been affected to date. And I presume it affects production, then, does it? You know what? Yes, it's a it, it sort of range of, of symptoms of it. Um, some flocks may be slightly more affected than others, but generally the birds um, get get affected and they may be off production for three or four days. You will get maybe a low level mortality, um, but then the birds do do recover after a period of time. Um, the issue with the disease is it's it's a herpes virus, so although birds can recover, they will have latent infection, infection and can, um, under periods of stress, reproduce the virus again. Um, so that's that's the issue with the, the type of virus that yeah, it is. And other than vaccination, is, is there any other um, way of controlling the disease? I mean, uh, is it like a common flu in a human being? Does it take a course, that type of thing? It, it will within the, the affected flocks. Um, and the vaccination is really primarily for um, protection of naive flocks. Um, so it's a risk, particularly on multi-age sites, where you have maybe a flock that's been affected and you're bringing younger birds onto the site. Um, so you want to make sure they're vaccinated coming on, that there's not a risk to them. Okay. Thank you. Hey, William. Uh, Patsy? Yeah, Chair. Uh, if I could just ask, um, well, well, a couple of three things. First of all, is um, the cause of the disease. What, what, what essentially brings this disease about? The second would be the levels of mortality, the mortality rates as a result of it. And the third would be um, in regard to prevention. Um, you mentioned there about the litter and, and how the litter is disposed of or, or not disposed of for a while, but the methods of, of uh, prevention. And then finally, <clears throat> Can it spread to um, say maybe more wild birds that are in proximity? Uh, by wild birds, I mean maybe where there are, and there could be, say, breeding of the likes of pheasants or, or other birds uh, that could potentially carry it on to, to other flocks. Th thanks very much, Patsy. So the virus can be easily transmitted by infected, by infected birds uh, and lacks biosecurity, um, wind spread, transportation of infected birds uh, and spread, as we outlined, of contaminated litter uh, are particularly important for, for the virus spread and, and to take account of that. Uh, in terms of mortality, in certain instances, mortality can reach 50%, uh, but signs usually subside within poultry who are affected within two weeks. Uh, and strains of the low vi variants produce mild symptoms uh, with little or no mortality. So it depends on the virus spread within the flock and also uh, within the virulence uh, and the um, what strain is within it. Um, I'll bring in Gemma uh, in terms of some of the some of the other questions there, uh, Patsy. Though, thank you. Okay, thanks, thanks, Dale. Um, yes, Patsy. So the uh, how it gets in originally, yes, um, certainly infected birds are a risk. But the initial the virus itself could be circulating in backyard flocks of poultry, um, 
and, and certainly it could be just really from a biosecurity lax that has got into maybe a flock initially and then has is easily easily spread. Um, initially, uh, the the first few flocks were very in close proximity to each other, so there was some evidence of potentially of one born spread of the virus to the flocks in that locality. But certainly because it spread more, we do think there are other elements that are adding to that that spread of disease, which includes. As I mentioned, the, the movement of, of litter. Um, so that's backyard flocks that might play a role in that. And as regards wild birds generally, it, it's more certainly a disease of, of poultry, um, as opposed to thinking of avian influenza, where we, we talk about the wild, the waterfowl, and that playing a part. It's certainly more just particularly a, a, a disease of, of poultry and, and backyard flocks as well. Then there was mention made there, uh, Neil made some mention of different variants. Uh, which variant are we seeing here? Which development are we seeing it, or are there a range of variants uh, in terms of the capacity to cause higher mortality rates? Patsy, I'll say, I think that was a mistake on my part, uh, but Gemma can come in on that. Patsy, it's more just the, the impact it has on, on a particular flock. We're just seeing a range of signs across the flocks affected. Um, and again, that adds to the risk of spread because we're seeing with some flocks, um, industry are taking on board maybe testing of, of flocks before birds move. And then there are scariest and they may be picking up disease at that stage in flocks that haven't shown any clinical signs. So you have a full range of birds showing signs, some showing milder signs, and some sort of going under the radar that potentially aren't showing full-blown clinical signs, but are infected with the disease. Just one, one wee practical thing. You mentioned there that have been disposed of. I'm trying to figure out in my mind why disposable litter should be taken to another farm then and get into another flock. Sorry, maybe I picked that up wrong. Just sorry, Neil, just or, sorry, I'll, I'll come in there, Neil. Um, litter, I suppose it's, it's litter being moved off of poultry farms. What what we're saying is for affected flocks, um, Patsy, is that it will stay on farm for thirty days, and yes. that's I thought in that stage the the viruses um, will be degraded by that by that stage, and when it's moved off, still taking precautions of the litter being covered, but it's been recommended again by industry that it's ploughed in directly or it's taken to anaerobic digestion. Um, and even in, in flocks within the risk zones, industry are again proposing to try and keep litter on farm for as long as possible and you know, treat it carefully and, and take it off covered off site. And again, the same same precautions because of those flocks that maybe aren't showing clinical signs as well. Okay, uh, you know, thanks, thanks very much. Okay, Patsy. Okay, um, where's my note here? Okay, uh, Morris. All right, Chair. Yes, Morris. <laughs> Go for Thank, it. You very much. Thank you very much. Patsy has touched on the question I was going to ask, and that's about the wild, the wild birds. But uh, uh, you've highlighted that this is highly infectious, and, and, and you say that birds can recover within 10 days. Is that recovery on its own or aided by treatments? And, and what's the real threat from unregistered flocks where people keep a few birds in the backyard, as you've called them, the backyard flocks? Uh, and how can you deal with them if they're not actually registered in the first instance? And also, just to touch on the point that Patsy has already raised, uh, uh, can it be passed on to the wild bird population and spread amongst the wild bird population, and thereby probably getting any more flocks further up country, et cetera, et cetera? Thanks very much, Morris. So again, some very late questions, so I'll bring in Gemma. Thanks, Gemma. 
Thanks, Neil. Um, so thanks, Morris. Um, so the first one about, about um, treatment and recovery. So yes, birds um, can be, be treated as up to the, the private vets, but certainly they can be antibiotic treatment and that given administers to those flocks um, to help alleviate the, some of the clinical signs that the birds are showing. Um, so yes, that's down to the, the flock keeper and, and their the vet of the the advice from their, their own private vet. Um, you asked then too about the, the risk with the sort of unregistered um, backyard flocks. This is sort of always a risk really for any poultry disease. Um, and it's something that um, the department where we try all, all the time trying to get back our flocks registered and getting the messages out there. Um, I, I know if, don't know if Jim wants to come in a few points yeah. there about registering back, back our flocks. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, happy to come in. Uh, good morning, uh, Chair. Good morning, Morris. Um, yes, um, as you rightly point out, Morris, um, backyard flocks unregistered um, are a cause of concern, and you know our main focus has always been on even influenza. But of course, in registering flocks, um, all flocks, um, we we have the opportunity to to get messages out there, biosecurity advice, and also information about disease outbreaks, and uh, also allows us to inspect whenever there is um, a disease um, incursion in a particular area. We've undertaken a number of um, actions in recent years um, in relation to that, um, which have been very successful. Um, one of the first was um, the form used to be um, a download, print, and post back form. We've turned that into an online form. That's seen a surge in the uh, increase of registrations from birds of one or mm -hmm. flocks of one to fifty birds. And we've also worked with our feed suppliers um, and over stickering. Um, feed bags um, for the small flock holders, so people have to buy feed, and that information there about the tech service and about registering. It's also mandatory in Northern Ireland that all flocks register regardless of size, unlike our uh, counterparts um, in uh, DEFRA uh, or in, in, in the GB. And we uh, recently, during the AI outbreak, um, held some uh, widely attended uh, backyard keeper webinars where um, our local poultry uh, veterinary practitioners and provided um, expert advice um, to backyard flocks. Um, it was well attended um, with over 150 backyard flock keepers. Um, and think, so those are some of the actions we're taking to address that. But, but I recognize you know, there, there's always gonna be a tail, Morris, that you're not gonna capture. And it's that challenge of getting backyard keepers to you know, recognize that they're part of the agricultural family, um, even though they may not see that themselves. Okay, thank you very much. You're certainly proactive. Uh, so congratulations for that. Uh, just a little wee point about uh, it can it spread to wild birds uh, and what, what the damage to the population of wild birds if it can spread to wild birds? Well, it certainly would be a lower risk to, to wild birds and certainly as I mentioned it's really exclusively more disease of, of poultry. Um, as I said the risk is really to the, the, the backyard flocks and as reiterated that biosecurity message generally for poultry disease that trying to keep um, you know people have back have a few birds and you know they're going near poultry farm that they shouldn't be there should be a certain step you know quarantine time between they would go near poultry farms so it's just those biosecurity messages of between the backyard flocks and, and the commercial farms is really key okay thanks very much thank you chair Problem. thank you all right okay thank you very much chair thank you i'm just wondering how is it identified? How is an outbreak like this identified? Like, is it um, reported to the department, or is it came across by inspectors visiting premises? 
First of all, thank you. Thanks, Harry. The, the first signs are clinical signs in the birds, uh, and then that is reported normally to the PVPs who will test uh, for the disease and, and then notify the department. It is notifiable disease, so the department must be notified, but there is not routine surveillance uh, on that particular disease. It's endemic, as I say, in the population, so no routine surveillance from vets, but if clinical signs are recognised or seen, then they're tested for this disease and then the department's notified. Okay, and there's absolutely no risk to the food, food chain or humans at all? No, we don't believe that there is. Um, uh, firstly, the affected birds, uh, there's a, a responsibility on keepers uh, not to be sending or, or attempt to send any affected poultry or sick poultry to any of the producers or the uh, industry uh, for food production. Um, there are strict post-mortem, or sorry, anti-mortem uh, tests uh, done uh, on all poultry going into the food chain. So ILT affected birds wouldn't pass. So no, we don't think there's any risk uh, of food going in, of affected poultry going into the food chain. Uh, and it cannot go from humans to, to, it cannot go from poultry to humans. So again, no risk to human health either. Good, good. Yeah. And lastly, how often would an outbreak like this occur? When's the last time we had something like that? Or, you know? Th thankfully, not very often, Harry. The last outbreak was 2013. Uh, okay. So we've had quite a period in between. Uh, yeah. And you know, that that's um, a consequence of industry working well with the department and industry taking on board the key biosecurity messages. And again, that's one of the key things that we outlined at the start. It affects primarily those in backyard flocks. Um, it's rarely, uh, as we've seen recently, in commercial flocks due to those good biosecurity measures taken by industry uh, so hopefully when this is uh, when this is dealt with you know we will not see one uh, for many many years again that's great thank you thank you chair appreciate uh, it yeah uh, rosemary rosemary okay thank you uh, thank you rosemary you're cutting out there Yes, can you hear me? It seems to be off and on. Can you hear me now? Okay. Have you now, Rosemary? Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that all that information. Just a couple of questions. Uh, basically, I'm interested. Obviously, uh, these cases are around around the Drone area. But is there any difference in the cases involving ch hens and chickens that are free range? compared to those that are in houses all the time. Is there a difference there in the spread of the disease? Thanks, Rosemary. I'll let my veterinary colleagues come in, but I don't believe that there is. Uh, but Gemma? Um, no, it, 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 you might get a very a slight variation maybe in the clinical signs, but that's simply, um, Rosemary, just to do, you know, if they're housed all the time, it'll go through the house much more quickly than free-range birds um, that are over a slightly larger area. That's really the only difference that we're seeing. Yeah. Right, so it does. It didn't matter. And the next thing, um, you, you spoke about vaccination. Is is there any thoughts on? I know Neil has said that it happened last maybe six, seven years ago. Is there any thoughts on perhaps vaccination, vaccinating against this in the future? Are there any thoughts about? <laughs> Rosemary, in industry do lead on this uh, and have developed protocols whereby they encourage vaccination of, of flocks in order to protect from the disease. Uh, I think a number of different things obviously outlined in terms of the broader flocks due to risk assessments in their short lives. Um, it wasn't seen as necessary to, to vaccinate those in terms of the risk benefits uh, over the course of time, considering when the last disease uh, occurrence happened in Northern Ireland. Um, obviously, breeding stocks and things, we do encourage vaccination and it is industry led, as I said. So the department does very much encourage this. We work with industry to look uh, at how we proceed over the next number of years 
others, but as I say, industry under the supervision of, of veterinary, uh, veterinary uh, PBPs can vaccinate flocks, and it's something that the department would encourage. Yeah, okay. And lastly, you talked about it perhaps being uh, this disease being spread sort of because of the spreading of litter. Are you, when you talk about spreading of litter, you mean spreading the litter on the fields, etc.? And I'll let, I'll let very colleagues in the issue or Gemma come in on that one. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, Rosemary. And can uh, confirm that that's the, the spreading of litter on fields, which is the normal way that uh, poultry keepers dispose of their mm-hmm. litter. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. I want, to, I want to thank you again very much for coming on short notice. Um, First, the one thing I want to ask you is, um, have you any assessment at the moment about, um, uh, is this contained, are we on top of it, you know, how how confident are you that we have it contained and it's been dealt with? Uh, well, I've I let colleagues come in and supplement, but I, I think we are um, pretty sure that we, we are doing taking all steps that we can uh, in cooperation with industry colleagues to ensure that it's contained as much as possible. As I say, we're offering epidemiological advice. We're offering the support of the department. We're getting those key messages out. Um, you know, it's success of the work that the industry has done over the past number of years that there hasn't been a disease outbreak since 2013. Um, and at the moment, as we can see, it is contained really to, to the areas around County Tyrone and, as I said, two in County Armagh. Um, so I'm not saying that there, we will not establish our find more, but I do think in, in general, in terms of our work with industry and what we're doing at the moment, we are taking all steps to ensure that it is contained. Uh, and we do feel that we you know, are very much on top of it at the moment, uh, as do industry. Uh, but I don't know if Jim or Jim want to come in if there's anything else to supplement that, in terms of uh, stakeholder engagement to date. Yeah, yep. I suppose, um, thanks Chair. I suppose just to add and supplement what Neil has said, um, we do benefit um, in Northern Ireland um, due to our size as well. Um, and we have a very close working relationship with you know the two main poultry veterinary practitioner practices um, and they have been you know very proactive um, in, in engaging the department and engaging with industry um, to a, um, identify cases um, and ensure that appropriate measures have been taken and also then spread the biosecurity message and encourage the vaccination and also other biosecurity protocols uh, particularly around the uh, letter um, so we do benefit from that close relationship from government veterinary practitioners and industry um, which is obviously a, a key factor. And have you been engaging with DAFM? Because I'm presuming this was impact across the border as well. So I can pick up on that, gentlemen. Want to add, Chair? We have been liaising with our, our colleagues um, in the ROI um, at the minute. Um, there has been one case identified in County Monaghan um, in recent weeks, um, and our colleagues in DAFM are dealing with that. Um, uh, we continue to meet with staff regularly. I met just last night um, on this matter um, and other matters in relation to um, disease control. That's perfect. Well, I want to thank thank you, uh, Neil, Jim, Gemma, and Ignatius for coming to uh, join us here this morning, uh, particularly at such short notice. So, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, thank you. members. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, members, we're going to move on to item six on the agenda this morning, and that's the oral evidence from the department on their business plan 21-22, paper from the department at page 21, and I want to welcome by Starleaf, Brian Doherty, Head of Central Services and Contingency Planning, Norman Fulton, Head of Food and Farming Group, Colin Breen, Director of Environmental Policy Division, and Dave Foster, Director of Regulatory and Natural Resources Policy. And I'd like to invite the officials to brief the committee.
Um, you may whistle. You may well. You, you may be muted there. Whoever's leading. Hello. Yes, we're here Hello. now, Brian. Sorry, 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 Chair. Right. Um, so, um, thank, thanks very much indeed, Chair, and to the members of the committee. Uh, first of all, quick thanks for the, to the committee for the opportunity to present the DERA 21-22 business plan this morning. Uh, Chair, you've already introduced my colleagues, Norman, uh, Colin and Dave. Uh, Chair, the plan is set in the context of what will continue to be a challenging year given the ongoing impacts of the pandemic, the UK's exit from the EU and the ever-increasing need to protect our environment. Although Northern Ireland seems to be in a better place compared to this time last year in respect of the pandemic, we must ensure we continue to progress the recovery and renewal of our economy in a sustainable way providing support and guidance as appropriate. In 2020-21, DERA provided £41.7 million of COVID-19 support to agri-food sector market intervention, waste management and fishery sector. We are continuing to provide support through the pandemic in 21-22, having secured a COVID allocation for the year ahead of £12.4 million. That is broken down as follows. £5 million for market support, £3.8 million for wastewater, 2 million for green recovery, 1 million for rural community schemes, and 0.6 million for the loss of income and operating costs. As well as the financial support, the policies and programmes we develop must build resilience going forward. Our exit from the EU presents significant opportunities in terms of designing Northern Ireland's future policies to better suit our regional economy, our environment, and our agri-food sector, building brand NI en route. In terms of the environment, the business plan reflects the Minister's wish to have sustainability at the heart of all we do within the department, capturing the, the department's purpose of sustainability at the heart of the living, working active landscape valued by everyone. We developed objectives for the plan ahead, which deal with our immediate challenges whilst considering the actions needed to build a strong economy and protect the environment in the long term. We consider these along with the draft programme for government, DERA's purpose and our four key strategic priorities, which are outlined in our recently published Plan to 2050 Sustainability for the Future. By way of recap, the four strategic priorities focus on growing the economy sustainably, protecting and enhancing the environment, thriving rural community economies and being an exemplar people-focused organisation. The final targets within the plan not only align with our strategic priorities, but also capture DERA's contribution to the delivery of programme for government outcomes. We have lead responsibility for delivering against the draft outcome too. We live and work sustainably protecting the environment and are the lead department on the green growth strategy, which will have a significant part to play. We also contribute to seven more of the nine draft outcomes and input to 18 key priority areas. To reflect the holistic and increasingly aligned way in which we aim to conduct our work, we categorise the 18 targets in our business plan into three themes. Delivery, to focus on existing business and legislative requirements. Designing the future, to encompass the huge agenda for change and enabling and empowering, which is, not, which is how we wish to continually improve to deliver more. And on the last point, I think it's worth mentioning that in the past year, our employee engagement index increased by 6% to 64%, which is the joint highest of all of the NICS departments. We've continued this trajectory and set ourselves an ambitious target of 69% for the year ahead. We are also reviewing how best to use our estate and are delighted to be piloting one of the regional NICS-wide connect to hubs at Ballycally in the year ahead. 
The plan recognises the need for partnership working to achieve our objectives due to the cross-cutting nature of much of our work. We have a strong history of working with others and will build on this collaborative and engaging approach, looking outwards and learning from others too. In keeping with the last year, we have kept the plan focused with key indicators to assist us in measuring our progress. We have a wide range of responsibilities and significant challenges to meet, but along with senior colleagues, I am confident, given the dedication and professionalism of our staff, stakeholders and delivery partners, we have demonstrated over the past 18 months that we will deliver well for those we serve. Chair, that concludes my briefing on the 2021-22 DERA business plan. I would uh, obviously welcome the committee's views and along with colleagues, happy to take any questions. Uh, thank you uh, for that, Brian. Um, Brian, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Brexit there just uh, uh, in the course of your uh, introduction. Um, and obviously, the uh, sector here is nervous about the prospect of the UK entering into a trade arrangement with Australia, which is a, a massive uh, food uh, producing uh, uh, continent, uh, and the possibility that, that could flood the British market, which is the main market for our producers here. Um, have the department carried out any impact assessment of the damage or that that may inflict um, for here, the for for producers here, for the sector here. So, Brian, you seem to unmute there, but uh, maybe Chair, if I could maybe come in on that uh, particular point. Um, so, uh, the department hasn't actually uh, conducted an analysis of this specific proposal, uh, but we do have concerns, uh, particularly around sensitive what we regard as sensitive sectors uh, on, on the beef. Uh, side, the sheep meat side as, as well. Uh, so certainly it is a concern uh, in terms of uh, what, what might emerge from that particular uh, trade negotiation. And uh, we continue to uh, make representations on those concerns into, into DEFRA. Uh, but it is the Department of International Trade that are leading on the uh, negotiations. Okay. Uh, and obviously, um, again, on the, on the theme of Brexit, you know, has the department been looking at the um, alternative markets? Have they been looking at maximising the benefits that we get from the protocol in terms of our unfettered access to both Britain and the EU? And I suppose you know the the bid for all island grass-fed beef status PGA status is probably a, a positive example of of some of the things that that may be um, beneficial for the industry as a consequence of protocol. Um, bear, no, if the British market becomes um, uh, flooded or, or we can't compete in it because of the presence of large amounts of uh, imported uh, beef from places like Australia uh, and per perhaps other, other, other continents as well, as this may set the precedent for uh, trade deals. Yeah, uh, Chair, the, I mean, the issue of uh, grass-fed PGI is, is not really a, a protocol uh, or uh, trade-related uh, issue, but certainly uh, if we can uh, secure Northern Ireland's access uh, to that particular PGI, then it does open up uh, possibilities for uh, increasing returns from, from markets. Uh, and evidence from uh, Commission um, research shows that there is a, a positive benefit from PGI status. Um, so marketing, uh, ultimately, is a, an industry-led um, 
function. I mean, it is a function of businesses to to market, uh, and the department does uh, assist uh, wherever it can uh, in terms of facilitating um, uh, trade, inter trade missions. And uh, uh, our veterinary colleagues obviously uh, have a key role in making sure that access to external markets is is secured and uh, and maintained. Okay, uh, and uh, again, um, no. In terms of. Um, has there been any progress towards a veterinary agreement uh, between the UK and the EU? Because obviously, that would be one of the um, that would be one of the means whereby we could uh, reduce some of the friction between um, Britain and here. You know, if we had like a, a like a Swiss style veterinary agreement, uh, which would, would help resolve some of the some of the, the challenges. Yeah, uh, Chair, that sort of uh, sort of takes us into the uh, the current discussions between uh, the UK uh, and, and the and the EU. That's a broader issue uh, than protocol. It's uh, effectively uh, that relationship between uh, the UK and the EU going forward, uh, and therefore it's it's not specifically a protocol issue. Now, if there was to be that agreement, it obviously would have implications for the operation of of the protocol. Um, uh, but uh, I'm sure, Chair, you're already aware that the UK government has been fairly clear uh, on its position around a, uh, a veterinary agreement of, of that of that nature. Yeah, 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 they're opposed to a veterinary agreement. That, that's correct. Yeah, they're they're not currently minded uh, to to go down that route. Mm -hmm. And just finally, and sorry, I don't want to hog it too much, but uh, the um, see the fact that. Uh, we're losing out on uh, on the five million pound for the the TB eradication, and also we're being netted the thirty four million as well. Do you, does does that um, have implications? Do you believe? And also as well the fact that we we only have a, a one year budget, whereby had we remained in the EU, we could have been dealing with a six year multi annual budget. Is this making it challenging for the department to to plan ahead? Um, certainly beyond one year. Well, in terms of the, the replacement EU funding, uh, yes, we're, we're operating on a, a one-year confirmed budget, uh, but we do have the, uh, the manifesto commitment uh, out to the end of this uh, parliament, uh, and so therefore that gives us, I suppose, a, a reasonable line of sight uh, as to what uh, we could expect over, over the next uh, few years. Um, but beyond that, uh, obviously, that's that's for uh, I suppose the next government uh, and the next parliament to de determine what the, the longer-term uh, budgetary provision uh, might be. I suppose the other thing I would mention is that um, under well, you know, what we have operated to date under Pillar Two uh, funding, we've always had the N plus three flexibility. Uh, in other words, uh, we have that flexibility to basically shift money. Uh, forward uh, on spent fundings from one year to the next, up to three years uh, when it comes to EU funding. Uh, we don't ha have that flexibility uh, under national funding uh, mechanisms. Uh, we have to spend in year uh, and going forward uh, as we start to develop our new programmes, new measures uh, under our domestic policy uh, agenda, it will make it more challenging uh, to, to manage those, um, particularly the, the multi-annual uh, agreements, uh, for example, on agri-environment, uh, where you have multi-annual contracts, but uh, manage that within an annual budgeting process. Uh, but that's the challenge that, that we simply have to address going forward. Thank you, Norman. And, uh, uh, oh, sorry. I was going to say, Chair. Sorry. 
I was just going to say, Chair, it's probably maybe also useful to add that we're actually undertaking a budget exercise at the moment. It's a three-year budget exercise um, that will be going from 22-23 going forward. So that'll give us a wee bit more a confirmation on longer-term budgets. That's great. Thank you for that information, Brian. Uh, we'll move around the, the room. John Blair. Thanks, Chair. I'm grateful for the update on the business plan. Can I ask, though, Chair, um, we're, we're told as a committee and as members that the Minister is bringing forward a climate change bill. We know for sure that there is a private member's climate change bill working its way through the Assembly. Can I ask what um, preparation for either of those or both of those there, there has been uh, within been made within the uh, business plan, given that we, we know also that the climate change issue and any Climate Change Act will have an effect uh, across sectors, across departments and across business areas within departments. So, Colin, maybe do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, um, sorry, can I just clarify, John, what you mean by preparations in this one? Um, for, for, yeah, yeah, uh, Colin, you know, you know I've, I've visited this issue before in relation to um, the, the monitoring round um, and, and on previous occasions. I am really asking what preparation there has been for any impacts or changes that will have to be made as a result of a climate change act within the various business sectors yeah so i suppose the first thing you know say this business plans for one year so either climate change bill whichever one comes forward is likely to only come forward at the end of the financial year uh, so that's worth highlighting secondly you know uh, either bill that comes through it, it's really the start of a process. Climate action plans need created. Neither neither bill will bring forward any policies to tackle climate change. That will be up to each individual department. So while there are a number of actions ongoing in DERA and other departments to reduce emissions, there there aren't any. You know, there, there there isn't a clear path set out from this bill as to exactly how we get to whatever target may end up in the final piece of legislation. So it's it's probably not appropriate at this stage to set out uh, an exact pathway of what we're going to do, because we need to know what the target's going to be, what the mechanism's going to be. So in terms of what way are the carbon budgeting system going to work, what way are the climate action plans going to work, because the two bills, uh, the proposed minister's bill and the private member's bill is currently going through, are quite different in the, the way that they aim to achieve certain things. So uh, really there's, you know, it, it's still at an early stage in terms of what we're going to do, but uh, I think that's about all I can say at the minute. Okay, but, but just to sort of tie it down a bit, I mean, uh, my, my concern is that, that some business preparation, rather than practical measures on the ground or, or rolling things out through, throughout the sector, that some business preparation, staff resources, departmental resources, might have to be prepared before the um, 1st of April 2022. In that regard, uh, um, if that situation did arise, can uh, funding be found or resources be found to, to meet those demands if, if that happens? Well, I suppose there, in, in all of the departments, there will be a number of teams already focusing on climate change. The, you know, I think, the, the, and I don't want to get into too much specifics, but I suppose the issue in the private members bill is, are there the resources within the executive office to do all of the, the duties it put, puts on the executive office? But that's not something I can comment on. Uh, I, I'm not sure how much it was that was looked at during the development of the bill. Certainly, within everything that was within the DERA bill, 
could be done at present in the current financial year within existing resource because we do have you know we have a climate change adaptation team we have a climate change mitigation team uh, we have the, the various green growth teams and then we have two climate change legislation teams so there are a number of teams that are working on that legislation who could then move on to the next phase because uh, if the department's bill were to come through the next phase it would be very much around secondary regulations around public body reporting getting the carbon budgeting and carbon accounting side of things going um, in terms of the private members bill there's much more of an onus put on the executive office and that's possibly something that you want to look at during your scrutiny because having looked at the call for evidence which i'm working on at the minute for the committee it seems that perhaps it, while the executive office is mentioned in the bill it's maybe more meant that it's for the executive as in all northern ireland departments to work on so that's not 100 percent clear in the legislation so that's that's something that i will be coming back with uh, in terms of your call for views just to say maybe that needs clarified in the legislation uh, you know to assist with scrutiny colin if i could just maybe sort of come in there um, and, and pick up uh, another point uh, as well uh, i mean obviously going forward we, we understand recognize that there will be a significant uh, response uh, to the carbon challenge for the agri-food uh, the agriculture sector going forward i mean we understand that uh, and uh, we still don't know exactly what the target will be that will come later in the year but we are building that into our future agricultural policy framework um, it's one of the things that we will developing significant significantly over this year and uh, there will be a, a significant carbon component uh, within all of that uh, because you know we, we all understand that uh, you know the, our response is needed from the industry uh, and, and so we are we are building that into our plans okay look, th thanks both for that hey john thank you uh, okay john, uh, Pate? Yeah, thanks very much chair and, and thanks to, to everyone for their presentation so far inevitably has raised a number of questions um just uh, first of all the um if i could dip into the the issue of the uk prosperity fund um are there any indications there as to how or if or in what manner it might feed into departmental funding because clearly the whole question of basic support for farmers and uh, continuation of the same is is still a major issue for many in the, in the farming communities but also could could i you're, you at the department have, well, we hear that there's a, there's a climate bill being worked through at the department. We haven't quite, quite seen it yet, but uh, you're aware that the private members bill, but you're also aware that there will be built into that, there has to be built into that, um, transitional measures to support various sectors, including um, uh, farming, uh, as they move or as they adapt or are incentivized to make changes. So I would be interested to hear just what provisions being made at departmental level or what thinking's going on around those those very variety of issues, please. So um, I wonder, um, there's, there's two things there, Patsy, you've probably just picked up on. In terms of the UK Prosperity Fund, Norman, is that something you could maybe pick up on? Um, yeah, well, uh, uh, I suppose uh, from a peripheral sense, uh, the Shared Prosperity Fund uh, is, uh, I suppose, flagged to be the replacement for some of the structure funds. Um, and there is uh, an earlier version of what's happening this year. I uh, can't quite, quite recall the name, but in preparation for, I suppose, longer term uh, plans around a Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, 
from what we understand, uh, and there's relatively little detail yet uh, around all of this, uh, is that that is a UK-wide fund, so different uh, in how it would operate compared with, um, you know, uh, the, the structure funds, uh, which were more, more, which were dealt with at regional level, uh, so that's still uh, a little way back uh, in, in 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 the sense of having full sign of light, light of sight on that issue. Okay. okay. Um, Sorry, the second, the second one, Yeah, maybe just. That would be me myself, I believe. Uh, it's a, so, if I'm right, you're asking Patsy what sort of uh, plans we're making to uh, build an adjust yes. transition into a whatever climate change bill. So, I suppose the, the first thing to say really is, uh, you know, the, the department's bill is now with the minister with the explanatory financial memorandum, etc. So he will be aiming to get that tabled at the executive quite soon. Uh, that there, you know, that's based on the balanced pathway outlined by the CCC. So we have a we have economic impact assessments done, and you know we feel that there is a way to get to that balanced pathway without the excessive costs. The private members bill, we can be less sure and you know less prepared because the CCC advice has said that there's no credible pathway to get to net zero by 2050. And they had, I think you're speaking to them later, they'd also said that to get to net zero by 2045 will likely involve the purchasing of carbon credits from elsewhere in the UK. So those are issues which the department hasn't been looking at because uh, we st we're still trying to get the narrative across to the committee and the assembly that this you know, it's not the best use of public money to do things like buy carbon credits or put large scale uh, engineered greenhouse gas removals in Northern Ireland at an extra cost of 900 million pounds per annum, for example. But you know, as Norman said, we're working with the agri sector, for example, to, to move towards a lower carbon. But uh, we still we still advise strongly that the at least 82% target, as advised by the Climate Change Committee, is the right target to go for on the one that is most likely to give a balanced pathway and a proper just transition. Okay. Chair, if I could, just one, one brief point. Uh, you referred to it earlier about the whole question of Brexit and uh, the situation we're in now with, with access to, to the single market. Um, and Brian referred earlier there to the opportunities. Uh, I would like to just establish, because this is after all a business plan, um, what, what opportunities are being identified, um, particularly on the UK, or sorry, on the, the EU mainland, uh, with access to that uh, single market? And also, what collaboration or coordination is is uh, ongoing with Invest NI? Because I'm I'm hearing Invest NI are particularly busy at the minute, and uh, some of their uh, client companies are exceptionally busy. So uh, I just want to make sure that both departments are availing of any opportunities that have arisen or are arising um, in more recent times. So, so I was going to say, yeah, Norman, I know, uh, and his team have been engaging with Invest NI. Patsy, maybe he might just pick up on that. Right, Norman's muted. Yeah, 
So, so Patrick, maybe I'll just pick up on it. Clearly, it's important that not only do we work with Invest NI, but other departments, and including colleagues in, in DFI, to maximise some of the opportunities. And given that we're only out of the EU since the beginning of January this year, um, those opportunities in many ways are still to fully manifest themselves. As you'll already know, we, we've been developing international markets over many years. We've had good success with in, in terms of getting into to China with pork and recently with beef reopening again for us in terms of an export market into the into the States. Uh, and I know that the food division and particularly within Invest and I, we have a, a strong sort of collaborative arrangement with them. So I think the, the opportunities are not just alone in the uh, on the food and farming group side. There's also mm -hmm. opportunities that we need to maximise around the environment, and I know that colleagues um, uh, like Colin and others will be trying to do that on a, not only in a sort of Northern Ireland, UK, European and global basis, um, but you know that, that will develop over a, a period of time. Um, but you know the department in, in itself cannot um, uh, cannot fully maximise all of those opportunities. So, uh, you know, and not only I should say with other departments, but in collaboration with a lot of our delivery partners as well, which goes far beyond, you know, just what we do and far beyond these shores. And Chair, if you would just bear with me, Brian mentioned environmental opportunities there. It would be helpful just if we heard uh, some indication as to what those are, maybe a bit of elaboration on that from either yourself or Colin there. That would be very useful. Um, well, maybe just I, I will draw Colin in um, on those uh, party, but you know, working, working not as I say, not only within Northern Ireland and uh, those partners that we have, our stakeholders and all of our customers, but you know, an example would be how can we improve environmental farm practices? Um, clearly, um, at a UK level, we have emissions targets. Um, going forward and international targets going forward um, uh, and, and, you know, on a very simple basis, electric vehicles being one. So, you know, having to work with, with industry as a whole in terms of those foreign practices. I think then be, beyond all of that, and it sort of takes me back into our international markets, is that, you know, as companies then look to buy products from Northern Ireland, we have to be seen as being an environmentally responsible um, uh, in, in terms of our industry. So it's trying to work with industry to ensure that they also apply environmental practices. So it's those sorts of opportunities. But like there, there are many more beyond. Colin may want to pick up on some of them, but that's the type of opportunities that, that are available to us. Yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll just add to that really to say, you know, that climate change has been probably the best one to draw us together on a global stage and get us all talking. And the knock on benefits for all of that in terms of water quality, air quality and all of those other things. And it's about that global working together because these challenges are global environment. All all of the environmental challenges now pretty much are global and so working together getting the best science and evidence from everybody seeing what's worked anywhere seeing what hasn't worked anywhere and just all working together you know we we are working quite widely and you know, i'll just mention this climate change committee again they'll be coming to you shortly uh, and they do work with people throughout the world to help provide us with advice on how we do things and that sort of model can only be strengthened through other environmental working as well. Okay, Chair, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Rosemary. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Uh, just, I want to, a couple of questions I want to ask. 
you, uh, you mentioned the two bills, Colin. Perhaps that, that made our one bill is obviously in um, in progressing, or one and the other may be coming forward. Will one supersede the other? Yeah, so um, we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago, Rosemary. It's, it's a very complex situation where um, there's nothing to stop Northern Ireland having two bills on the same subject going through at the same time. Where certain things are legislatively incompatible, the newer version supersedes the older one. But that's not as simple as saying, oh, they're both on climate change, therefore the newer one overtakes the, the, the older one. That's not the case. It's where two things were are very similar but one isn't quite the same as the other. So uh, our bill, um, which the Minister uh, has received very recently, along with explanatory financial memorandum, etc., uh, will be discussed at the executive. Uh, it, you know, the aim was the Minister still to introduce that bill. Then the two bills may go through passage at the same time, and it would be up to yourselves in the committee to scrutinise our bill in the context of the private members' bill and say whether there would be amendments needed. It's it's a it's a massively complex situation, but there are you know the, I, ha I have got some legal advice on it, and there are there are elements that could end up if if they weren't properly uh, amended during consideration stage. There are elements of both bills that would be enacted. For example, the department's bill doesn't uh, have a climate commissioner and climate office in it, so there'd be nothing incompatible between those two bills. So there'd be a climate commissioner looking at uh, targets, for example, and also then the climate change committee, and then also the executive and the assembly through various reports that are led with them. So uh, it's, uh, I suppose the, the simple answer is it, it's massively complicated, but yes, the two bills can go, and it wouldn't be as simple as saying one supersedes the other. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for that. But one other, a couple of other things I want to ask you: the use of we are already discussing climate change, the use of agricultural technology in relation to climate change. Can you give me a wee bit of a brief on what you're thinking there in relation to the business plan? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's there's a lot, uh, Norma will come in after me, but I'll just say there's an awful lot of things being developed at the minute, but there aren't an awful lot of things mm -hmm. far enough advanced to do, you know, the sort of level of emissions reductions that we need uh, at present. You know, for example, uh, I know the chair talked to me the last time about the marginal abatement cost curve and the 26 to 28 actions in that. So Chuggis have mm -hmm. said that those 26 to 28 actions will reduce agricultural emissions by about 7% in the short term. That's up to 2030, 35-ish. So there's certainly not going to be some magic answer, but the technology is emerging all the time and there are there is better science coming all the time. Things like feed additives, which I'm sure AFBI will talk about with you later as well. I know they're coming there heavily involved in that. So there are lots of things that can be done but at the end of the day, you know, the big emitter in Northern Ireland in terms of agricultural emissions are livestock, and there's no magic answer for reducing those emissions in the short term, which is why the CCC gave us the advice they did. And I think Norman will say a bit more. Oh, Norman's, I don't think Norman's headset's working. So. Okay. Uh, um, okay. Thanks for that. Um, I'm, go I'm going to have to move around to William. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, 
Can I say I broadly welcome the Dear Business Plan? Um, there were many anomalies in, in relation to Brexit. There was widespread fears that prices would collapse. There's widespread fears in relation to land prices, and those didn't materialise. And indeed, some of those, for instance, land prices have been at the highest levels probably ever. So, uh, have you any reason for that, or is is it is it proof again that market trends are very difficult to to judge? Uh, that's one question. The other one would be in relation to climate change, would you accept that farmers will need financial support if they're going to uh, adapt and change uh, and play their part? Um, there are many issues, many old farms, farm buildings are 50, 60 year, years old and by their working life, you know, so I think uh, it's going to be important that there's support and help for those farmers to adapt and change uh, and reduce emissions uh, and I think the department needs to be proactive looking forward in relation to that and look at the best ways that can be done. Is the department currently looking at those issues? Well, I think, um, William, thanks for that question. I, I think at the outset it's probably important to state that far, the farming industry, indeed actually the wider farming family, has already been doing a lot in terms of emissions. So it's not as if the starting point here is, is zero. And clearly there is a commitment from not only farm businesses, but also those that represent farmers to play their role in trying to reduce emissions. And this is very much an, an ongoing um, so we won't say exercise, but it's an ongoing thing. And um, I think from the department's point of view, we will have to work collaboratively with farm businesses and their representatives to try and develop policies and schemes that would provide the necessary support to allow them to move forward and make an even greater contribution than, than what they're currently doing. So, you know, by way of example, you have the environmental farm scheme. Um, which has been quite successful, has had very um, very considerable uptake, and we're sort of moving through tranches four and, and, and into tranche five. So, you know, I think this is very much iterative going forward. I'm very keen to hear from farm businesses on what their suggestions are, because you only have to look at, at farm businesses across Northern Ireland and indeed beyond, and they're diversifying all the time. They're equally looking for opportunities and they're investing in new techniques. And that's not just to meet the environmental requirements, but it's also to make them very competitive in the sort of agri-food world. Um, and that's also probably what's required of them um, in terms of both customers and suppliers. So, you know, we, we will be looking at what schemes of, of support that we can provide. They do need to be tailored and they do need to be focused. Um, I don't think there's any expectation that foreign businesses will be left in isolation. I think that that would be, uh, it would not be the minister's wish at all. Um, and we need to sort of develop those schemes over the, over the coming months and years. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and uh, the farm, the, the, the farm uh, environmental schemes, environmental farm schemes have been very good and helpful in regard to that. Uh, and uh, as you've said, I mean, I'm a, I'm a farmer all my life, so I, farmers want to play their part and want to do what they can to help. But I think it's, it's vital. We have a thriving industry in Northern Ireland, uh, agri food industry, and it's vital that we try and protect it as best we can moving forward and at the same time reducing emissions. Uh, 
Absolutely. Thank, thank you. Thank you, William. Uh, Claire? Picking up on that global trading and global markets um, issue that was being discussed there as well, just in relation to carbon and climate. Can I just ask if Northern Ireland produce is not labelled as net zero, um, would that be a problem for us in being able to sell to sort of global corporations or other states and countries who have that either in legislation or in strategy? So. Uh, I'll, I'll, can I start here, Brian, just, or is that, or did you want Sure, no, it's okay, can I? I was, I was just going to say, Claire, so, uh, you know, I, I know we keep uh, sounding like a broken record almost, but, uh, you know, Northern Ireland, uh, setting all politics aside, is still part of the UK, and we're feeding into the UK net zero um, in line with, you know, the Paris Agreement. So uh, I don't see any reason why, uh, you know, Northern Ireland couldn't be labelled as going for net zero and playing their part. Let's say Yorkshire, for example, had beef and they were producing it. They will be. They wouldn't be. They'd be leaving it as Yorkshire beef as part of UK net zero if they were going to that. Um, so I don't see any difference between either of those things. We're still we're, we're playing our part. We're just uh, producing more food in our region for the other regions, um, and they in turn become sinks. Uh, that, that's essentially the, the basis of UK Net Zero. Okay, thanks for that. And then going into the business plan, the plan states that we need to ensure all departments are on track for green growth. Um, and at note, the last data update on the green growth, officials told the committee that the, the green growth interministerial group included infrastructure, communities, economy and finance with the hope of having other departments involved. Um, has any movement been made to get the other ministers and departments involved? Um, well, well we, we have been working, uh, as you know, Claire, across a range of departments and also, of course, a, a number of other partners. And there is a commitment from the executive with regard to green growth. Um, and I think that as you see business plans coming forward, not only for this year, but in subsequent years, you will see, or I would be surprised if you didn't see elements within all of those plans with regard to, you know, how they're going to contribute to what is a, a very wide issue, so way beyond the public sector in its broadest sense. Um, in terms of that membership, I think it will continue to grow as the, those individual departments who are, who are currently not in there um, have a particular focus on green growth issues. So, you know, this is very much at early stages, I would suggest. Um, and, and we will see that all of the departments, and as I say, the executive has given a commitment on the green growth strategy. Okay, thanks. And then under target nine, DERA said that they will publish an agreed food strategy framework for Northern Ireland. Have you any more detail on that? Um, or has any work been done so far with it? And what other departments have been engaged with, etc.? Um, I, I, I don't know if Norman's back online yet or not. Uh, on it, I'm not too sure. But um, so, so apologies that, that he's having a, a few difficulties. Um, so, with regard to, to that particular um, target, uh, just bear with me a second as well. I'll, yeah, I'll just, um, I'll just so, say now, I've been, I, Brian, I've been doing a bit of work with uh, Norman's side on the food strategy, so there, there is plenty of work going on. There, there has been an innovation lab, for example. There, there's a lot of uh, engagement with stakeholders, um, and it's uh, it's certainly something that and i think i believe that the the food side of things is also going to become a foundation program within green growth and norman can nod if i'm correct here yeah yeah 
Yeah, so I think maybe just to, to, to add to that, Claire, we, we have been facilitating the, the early exploration of a, a future food strategy framework for Northern Ireland, working collaboratively with, with colleagues in the Department for the Economy, and clearly they have a, a very major interest in, in economic aspects of, of food. And scope and work to date has highlighted that food potentially plays a role in almost all of the 14 strategic outcomes in, in PFG. Um, I understand that one of the key findings was the need for an enhanced collaborative approach across all of the departments to address the challenges um, and, and probably to maximise whatever the, the opportunities are. So, you know, the proposed food strategy framework will be progressed under the governance of the executive's multi-decade green growth strategy and the delivery framework. Um, and that will also have oversight from the interministerial group for green growth. Thank you. Okay, Claire. Okay. Um, just before, I just want to just pick up on that, just on the food issue again. Um, again, see, no, and then again, this relates to sort of what the question Claire asked a while ago as well. See the fact that virtually all of the food that we produce here is of mixed origin. Its food is processed across the island of Ireland. Is there, like, do we have... A definitive answer: uh, If that if part of the island is producing food which uh, is not, uh, if part of the island isn't uh, hasn't reached carbon neutrality, and our part has, given that the food is mixed origin, uh, you know we, we import four hundred thousand pigs from the south, and we export about half a million sheep. Surely there bound to be some application, you know, not not even for the north of Ireland, but for the island of Ireland. If, if part of the island hasn't reached carbon neutrality at the same part as they are, because we don't, our food isn't processed. We, we export to Britain, that's good enough. And okay, constitutionally, we may well be part of the UK, but in all other terms, in terms of being on a single epidemiological island and our food, our, our food production, then surely there has to be some implication if the both parts of the island aren't, aren't at the same levels of carbon neutrality. So, Colin, sorry, Norman. Oh, Norman's still having a few difficulties, I think, there with his, his microphone. I don't know, Colin, is there anything you want to pick up first? Yeah, well, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'll not go through the whole UK thing again. The, really, I suppose the thing to say here is, you know, at present, Northern Ireland are still are much further ahead on emissions reductions than the Republic of Ireland. So that can't be forgotten about. Yes, there, you know, there's possibly a more ambitious target in the south of Ireland at present. Uh, although you know, I had highlighted the difference between carbon neutrality and net zero uh, at my last appearance. So um, all we're saying is you know, we're, we're currently Northern Ireland are in a better emissions reduction trajectory than the Republic of Ireland. So at present, I see absolutely no issue. And I think uh, uh, you know, the, the south of Ireland are relying very much on emerging evidence, emerging science, as we are. All we are doing is saying, from the department's point of view, that you know we are putting a target in the bill that's currently credible and achievable, um, relying on current science that's available. Uh, so I don't see any issue at present, and I think you know if if it comes to a stage where the the Republic of Ireland are making the sort of emissions reductions that they need to to get to net zero by 2050, I think. Uh, 
Northern Ireland will have no problem doing the same because we have a, a smaller livestock numbers where we have a smaller percentage of our emissions coming from agriculture and uh, we are further along the path to reductions. You know, we are around 20% reduction in emissions. The South of Ireland are currently at about an 11% increase in emissions. So uh, I don't see any issues at present, um, other than the you know what is seen as a presentational issue that we are not going for net zero on Northern Ireland. But I think we have more than enough evidence and advice to say we're going for a credible target. Or well, sorry, that the 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 DERA bill is proposing a credible target. Obviously, the private members bill proposes the net zero by 2045 target, and that is currently all that's in the legislative system. Okay. Well. Thank you very much uh, for attending this morning, Brian, Norman, Colin and Dave, and um, no doubt we'll be engaging with you as, uh, in the time ahead. So thank you, folks, and hope you have a, a nice day. Okay? You too. Thank you. Take care now. Okay, uh, members, we're going to move on now to uh, item seven, and that's an oral evidence session uh, on the Climate Change Bill from the UK uh, Climate Change Committee. And I want to welcome by Starleaf, uh, Lord Debbin, the Chair of the UK Climate Change Committee, and Thomas um, Andrew, the Senior Analyst of the Climate Change Committee. And I'd like to invite Lord Debbin and uh, Thomas to brief the committee, and then members will ask some questions afterwards. So you're very welcome. Well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, I will be short in my briefing simply because uh, uh, you have uh, a time constraint and I'll do my best to, to, to help as far as that's concerned. Uh, first of all, the Climate Change Committee is very clear in the basis upon which it operates. First, it is absolutely determined to make sure that uh, its findings and its recommendations are based on the science. And therefore, we have a reputation internationally for being entirely reliable. The second thing is that we are not prepared to advise people to do things which we know they can't do. Because otherwise, we won't be accepted by the, those who have to implement our policies. So when we set the uh, net zero target, was in response to the United Kingdom's government's request, could we get reach net zero? By when could we reach net zero? And what would it cost? So that's what we did. We said, yes, we can. We'd like to do it as early as possible, but we do not believe it can be done sensibly until 2050. And then we can do it at a price which will be somewhere between half and 2% of the gross national product. That has since been revised as we have done much more work on the costings. And we can say that it will be about 1% at most, maybe less than that. So in looking at the whole of the United Kingdom, we are committing to net zero in 2050. But as for the constituent nations of the United Kingdom, each has a different problem, each has more or less opportunities. It will all have 
to add up to net zero, but it is perfectly reasonable to say that the Scots feel that they can reach net zero by 2045. The Welsh were originally thought not to be able to do it until after 2050, but we now see that they can. And then we come to look at Northern Ireland. And as far as the Northern Ireland is concerned, what we have recognised is that the particular problems mean that it cannot reasonably be sure of reaching uh, net zero by 2050, but that it can do 82%. Now, that's a very tough demand. Don't for one moment think that we're asking something small. And secondly, because we do it in this way, we are expecting you to reach it. It's not a, it's not a kind of hopeful, wish list kind of uh, figure. It is a necessary part because, as somebody said in the previous session, which I was privileged to be able to watch, um, somebody said there very, very simply that um, what this means is this is a whole United Kingdom decision um, but it means other parts of the United Kingdom are going to have to make up for the bits which will be more difficult for the north of Ireland to deliver. So if in Northern Ireland you uh, then face the issue um, of uh, the relationship between uh, the Republic and yourselves, then I think one has simply to say you are part of the United Kingdom. That is what you have chosen to be. And as long as you're part of the United Kingdom, it's the United Kingdom um, uh, net zero by 2050 to which you uh, 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 contribute. Now, I know there are all sorts of other difficulties which arise, particularly since we have left the European Union. Um, but uh, the fact of the matter is, it's in that context that we have said what we've said. And I want to say, I'd love to be able to get net zero in Northern Ireland by 2045. But I would be untruthful if I said you could do it. I absolutely truthful to say you can reach 82% by 2050. But I also have to say that is going to be extremely hard. You'll have to work very hard on it, and particularly the farming community, which, as you know, I have a particular interest in as a farmer myself and former Minister of Agriculture. I want to say it's going to be very important for the farming community to buy into this and to work on all the mechanisms that it can have to reduce the emissions which agriculture produces. Okay. You okay, Lord? Can you can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can. Oh, sorry. I thought I thought uh, so. Um, okay. Thanks very much uh, for that uh, presentation, uh, Lord. Um, do you want to add in there, Thomas, or are you okay? Are you come in after? Or? Uh, I think I'm. I'm just providing sort of technical. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Today, so uh, right. I'll, I'll let Lord even do most of the talking today. Thank well, that's perfect. No He's there when I forget the facts. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I suppose it's, it's just uh, it's just drawn on, on the last and the last uh, the post the last comments I made there that you were listening into. Um, 
you know, I think I know. Okay, I hear what you're saying that you know that I suppose constitutionally this part of Ireland is part of the UK, right? But um, from and all other ways, particularly in relation to to food processing, uh, we're part of uh, the the island, the island of Ireland. Um, and you know, even if we look at uh, in the energy market as well, the experts within the energy market are saying the best way to reach net reach net zero in that sector is to look at it on a single island basis. So, why do you not think it'd be better if we could that we should be looking at this on a single island basis? Uh, and indeed, because we're the same island, we have we have far more the same characteristics land patterns, farming patterns, where food production is produced completely across the island, would not make more sense to look at that as an island-wide basis as opposed to this part of the island as part of uh, like, uh, the, the UK contribution? Well, I'm, uh, you, you, you tempt me in a very dangerous way to move into the two most contentious things we could talk about, which is Brexit and the uh, relationship between North and South of Ireland, and I'm determined not to get into that. Uh, we just have to live in the world we have created for ourselves. We've created for ourselves a divided island, and we've created for ourselves a, a United Kingdom outside the European Union. Uh, my own views on both those subjects are well known. Um, well, they're well known about Brexit. Um, but uh, uh, the fact of the matter is we now have to live with it. And therefore, what we are proposing is the United Kingdom uh, answer. Uh, the Republic will be proposing the European Union answer. And between us, we're going to have to work out the cross-border issues uh, which you're perfectly right to point to. And it's also perfectly right that uh, much of the agricultural activity in both parts of the island are very similar. So no doubt this will be a, a very important element in the work that you do to try to make sure that you work together in the most effective way. But I have to deal with the politics as they are and not with the politics as either I or you or anyone else would like them to be. So in those terms, I have to advise you as a part of the United Kingdom that you can manage, if you work really hard, 82%. I am not advising the Republic government, nor do I know what advice they've had, nor how they have worked out that they can reach net zero in 2050, because none of that information is available. Um, uh, okay, I hear, I hear what you're saying, but, um, well, I should say one thing is that, um, you know, I don't believe that we have actually created a divided island. Uh, there are decisions made historically which have resulted in that, and indeed our decision here in relation to Brexit has been overridden uh, by the effectively the English decision uh, on Brexit. But but I don't want to go. I don't want to talk. Certainly don't want to talk uh, politically. But I, I think it's really important to point out that historically and even preceding partition, uh, food processing has always existed across the island of Ireland. And indeed, uh, we have situations even in my own constituency where there's, there's, there's farms where one side of the field is in the south of Ireland and one side of the field in the north of Ireland. And to just uh, 
implement a very rigid uh, approach. Oh, this is part of the UK, and there, that's all we can do about it. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense on the ground. And we're just after the very first briefing we had this morning was to do with uh, uh, an outbreak of diseases amongst poultry, and again, it straddles the border between County Tyrone and County Monaghan because we live on one island, notwithstanding uh, the, the politics of all that there. So uh, again, I, I still, uh, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, many do believe that it would make more sense that this is looked at from an island of Ireland, island of Ireland point of view. And I should also say that if we're looking at a situation where England, Wales uh, and Scotland are moving towards uh, car carbon neutrality um, by, by 2050, there, there is there is a constituency, a large constituency of people here who feel that the that we will end up in a situation where the environment in the north, that's air quality or soil and water, and uh, um, will be worse off than in Britain, and they don't feel that that's fair. That 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 that, that the north should be worse off, worse off than Britain. Uh, you know, uh, effectively, what critics are saying that as a consequence of the north being a food producing region for Britain that we're just going to be left effectively as a carbon dump with different uh, targets and different air quality than, than, than other parts? Well, I understand that, but uh, I don't, what I don't understand is why it would make it easier for you to accept a target which we know you can't reach in the present circumstances. Now, should we have significant breakthroughs on uh, ways of reducing emissions from agriculture? Should we have new ways of ensuring that we have sequestration much more widely? Let's say, for example, an area in which I'm particularly interested, which is sequestration by the oceans around the islands of, the, uh, of Britain, uh, then we would obviously change the uh, target. But what we can't do is to present a target today which is not one which we can stand behind and keep you too, which is part of our job, and keep the United Kingdom government too in that part which it has to make up if we put forward a proposal which we know is not in conformity with the uh, uh, kind of uh, work that we have done to see what, in the present circumstances, with the present technologies, you can do. Now, I'm a great believer in setting high targets in order to make sure that people reach them. I don't want to have dumbing down, but 82% is going to be bloody difficult, and therefore, it's really the highest that we can ask you to do in the present circumstances. Should we move on to a situation in which there could be more cooperation, more opportunities, new technologies, new ideas which we could operate, then we will revise that target. But I don't think it helps anybody to aim at something which all the research that has been done by very significant people working very hard to get it right says is not possible. Um, okay, thank you for that. Um, there's a number of speakers who have wanted to ask some questions. Claire, you're first on the list. 
Thanks very much, Chair, and thanks for being with us again, Lord Devon. I just want to pick on that. Your 82% um, target, I fully understand, and you're saying is based on current systems and present circumstances. And obviously, then the UK government have committed to net zero by 2050. And I'm just wondering then how you would advise a government who has passed legislation for net zero. And the question was how we get there and not whether a net zero by 2045 target is set. So if we're basing our, our, our projections on current systems and present circumstances, but we know that we have to shift far and fast. Um, and the question was how and not whether. How would that work out? Well, first of all, we, we have advised the United Kingdom government precisely on the question of could they get to net zero on what is the earliest date they could do it. And that is what we have said about 2050. Now, if the government said to it, we want to reach net zero by 2040, let us say, we would have to say to them that there are a series of things which cannot be put into order in current circumstances to enable you to do that. I wish we could. No one is more aware of the absolute and serious urgency of doing everything we can do to keep the, um, uh, the level of climate change, the level of heat below 2 degrees and as near to 1.5 as is possible. I am totally on your side. Uh, I very rarely find myself out of line with what the Greens want to say on these matters. But I do have a proper and statutory job to say that I don't believe that Britain as a whole, the United Kingdom as a whole, and the United Kingdom could do this more quickly than 2050 under current circumstances. Now, we have put in all our documentation a mechanism with showing what would happen if everything were on our side, that if new technology came in and, the, and, and there were no drawbacks and it all worked together. And that shows that we could do it very slightly earlier, but everything would have to be on our side. Now, I've run businesses all my life. Um, I uh, believe very strongly in achieving ends. I want to win. I don't believe you achieve ends by telling people that they can do something which you know they can't. I do believe that they may be able to do that if you get them on the route to do something they know they can do, and you then apply uh, any new information, any new technology, and you give them the opportunity of doing better. And that's exactly what we would do. It's the real thing for me is, how do we get even 82% done? Because people have got to believe in themselves. They've got to know they can do it. I can assure them they can do it. I can work with them to do it. I can push the Northern Irish government to make sure they do it. And after all, there are lots of things I'm going to have to push them on, if I may say so. And you and I may well find ourselves doing the same thing in that. But we, but I don't think you can do it if you ask an Ulster farmer to do something which he knows he can't do. Um, and that's why I've got to stick to this. 
Claire, Sorry, I'm... Claire, unmute yourself. Uh, I am, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, Claire. Oh, now I can, yes. Sorry, apologies. So what happens then if the UK government decides to increase their climate ambition ahead of COP or maybe at COP or something outside of COP um, and they want to go further, go faster, uh, would the CCC be recommending that that's just not achievable and it's not possible? Well, we'd have to. We are the official advisors. That's why they have accepted the sixth carbon budget. They're not going to do that because they've already accepted the toughest measures that any country in the world has accepted. And we do have to recognize that. I mean, I am well known for being pretty critical of the government, but I have to say accepting what we have proposed to them means that the United Kingdom is now actually accepting a program which is tougher than anyone else's. Now, that I think it has to do because it can't reach net zero by 2050 unless it does that. And, and what I spend my time doing, um, uh, actually, is bringing ministers' feet to the fire. I've been doing it this morning with the Minister for Education, pointing out that they are not doing a whole series of things they've got to do if they're going to reach net zero by 2050 and i'm afraid i can see a long period ahead of doing precisely the same with the government of northern ireland because there's a i saw somebody saying that they're you're doing better than the south uh, you're not doing well enough you know if you're going to do your 80 2%, then there's a great deal that's got to be done immediately, which is why I say to you, we may find ourselves saying the same things about exactly that. Yeah, um, thanks. So you're not expecting the UK government to, to move their targets? I mean, you know that Boris Johnson recently came out um, and increased the UK's ambition um, to 78%, I think it was, by 2035. Which is, well, it's exactly... It's exactly the figure which meeting the sixth carbon budget, which we um, produced in December, was the most expensive work ever done anywhere in the world. Meeting that is exactly what the Prime Minister has committed himself to for 2035. In other words, we have set the budgets, the figures in those budgets are the figures which the Prime Minister has accepted and announced. He hasn't announced anything different from that. Okay, I just want to maybe look at, do you, would the CCC see any potential risks to private investment in Northern Ireland if we don't achieve net zero? So if we have the world um, and the corporations and global um, private investment moving towards net zero, um, and Northern Ireland isn't going there or going in a different direction. Have, have you identified any potential risks for banks' investments or loans and, and, and investment in businesses here, for example? Well, we looked at that very, we looked at that very particularly um, because it is quite clear that one of the great achievements of the past. Um, um, well, I think almost six months, but certainly 12 months, is the movement of the financial world uh, to look at these issues as a key part of how it invests. We believe that there is no worry about that as long as the North of Ireland is keeping in line with the 82%, because that means that it will be keeping in line with the United Kingdom commitment. 
So that is exactly what you need to do. We, we have no evidence whatsoever that it will make life more difficult for you, either in investment or in selling. But as in every other circumstance, you have a particular quality of uh, meat and dairy products and other things, which um, I must say I often buy. So there, there, there you are, and you, you are wanting to build the reputation of Northern Ireland around that. It will be very important for you to say all the way along the line that you are meeting the targets, that you are making your proper contribution to the United Kingdom, and not to allow anybody not to say that. It will, of course, be necessary. And I think that people will respect you in a way which they won't. People who merely say, we're going to do it, without showing that they can do it. See, my worry is a much bigger one. There are a lot of people around the world who are promising things which they have no intention, well, no plan, and probably no intention actually of achieving. You're promising something which you intend to achieve. And as the weeks and months go by, that's what will count. Okay, thanks. And do you not do you see then that there being no difference between our equitable contribution at a UK level um, and at a global level, um, and as you've identified there as well, particularly with Brexit and the protocol, um, that Northern Ireland produce is labelled and identified as ours to allow for SPS checks, to allow for movement of goods, and that, for example. So uh, and. So you don't see any difference then between Northern Ireland's equitable contribution being a UK one and identified differently as a global one? I, I think that uh, it, it will not be in any way harmful. And if I did, it would be one of the things that I would have underlined in the statements that I have made. So I don't think it would be harmful. And frankly, I think other people are going to have to think about this too. I, when I was asked what was the proudest moment in my, um, uh, this is something I've never said before, except that very occasion, I was asked what was the proudest moment in my ministerial career. It's when I broke the government advice and voted in favour of the bubble in the European Union, which you remember was the way in which they, they came to Kyoto. Because the bubble meant that the United Kingdom had to do more in order that Ireland and Portugal and some other countries could do less because they had not started in the way that we had. I wanted to do that because I think this is a matter of justice and that was the justice that I sought for. The same thing is here. It's a matter of justice. There are parts of the United Kingdom that can do better than uh, others, and they should do it. And the parts that will find it more difficult should be given that, uh, that balance. And if we lead the world in that way, so that we're constantly talking about the just transition, then I think we'll get the world much more likely to follow us. We're going to have to pay for that transition in the poorest countries. We're going to have to help those countries with technology and the like. And we're going to have to have a just transition within the United Kingdom of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We're going to have to have a just transition there so that the poorest don't bear a bigger burden than they can possibly do. All that has to happen, and this is, for me, part of that just transition.
Okay. Read clear. Okay, thank you, Lord Devon. I'm going to move around to Harry. Okay, thank you very much, Chair. And good to see you, Lord Devon, and you also, Thomas. <clears throat> Just a few comments you made yourself, Lord Devon. You said your findings are based on science. They're entirely reliable and you work with the world. I was very impressed with that. Lord Devon, farmers are doing a lot, as you know, and they're always happy to play their part. But we do need to take into account our thriving food market. And would you agree that the private members, members bill is no credible pathway? And I'm just wondering, did the Climate Change Committee have any engagement with the private members authors prior to the submission of the bill? Well, um, I don't. I, I think that second question is one that I, I'm not going to answer because if, if we do have conversations or not, doesn't mean that we have or we haven't. Seems to me that we ought to have those in privacy and it's open to everybody to come and talk to us. But as far as the first thing is concerned, uh, we have presented a figure which we believe you can reach and which we can show you the route to reach it. I don't think that there is a similar route if you change the figure and the date. So if you change it from 82% to 100% and you change the date from 2050 to 2045, I do not think there is a credible route to do that. If I did, I would have proposed it myself. Um, therefore, what I have proposed is the very toughest figure that I believe you can do. And I will then be able to do what I intend to do, and I'm sure my successor, when I go in 18 months' time, will do the same, which is to press and keep the government of the North of Ireland online. Because I can do that honestly and decently because I know they can achieve it. I couldn't do that if I asked them to do something they couldn't do. Okay. Yep, yep, that's great. Thank you. And you've made it clear that net zero by 2050 is at best courageous. What were the key considerations that formed this position? And do you feel that those considerations have been accounted for within this private member's bill? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to uh, comment on the private member's bill. What I have said is that... Um, uh, all the work that we have done, and it is recognised as the most extensive done in the world, particularly the six carbon budget, which has been received, I mean, almost everywhere globally, um, as absolutely exemplary, that the work that we have done leads one to be able to say truthfully, to the United Kingdom government, you can do this, and you can promise, therefore. You can say, we are going to do 68% reduction on 1990 by 2030, that we're going to do a tougher target by um, 2035, and that we can actually promise that because we know we can do it. And that's all based on that science. And uh, I think that one of the things that my predecessor who did it back in those days, 10, 11, 12 years ago, 
um, when we started, uh, of course, the battle was to get people to believe in climate change. We don't have that problem very much any longer, but people had to understand and believe in it. But he was knew very right from the beginning that you couldn't get people to accept it unless you got the science right, unless you'd done your homework, unless you were very clearly recognised as being accurate. And even those people, small number now, who actually don't believe in climate change, the one thing they've never been able to do is to undermine the facts that we have presented. And that gives us a great strength. And I think the government of the North of Ireland ought to be quite worried about that because if I were the government of Northern Ireland I know that I was going to be pressed, pushed, argued with, given every demand because the Climate Change Committee had shown that I could do it and therefore I would no longer have the excuse. Now the problem of asking a government to do something it can't do is that it has an excuse not to do even as much as it can do. And that's, for me, the danger of asking people to reach a level which we know we can't do. Okay. Okay. Okay, hi. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank right. you, Lord Devon. Um, right. Thank John. you. Okay, John, there. Chair, thank you, Lord Devon. Thomas, uh, can, can I add to, to the welcome you, you were given earlier for, for coming back again to, to the committee? Very good to see you. There are two issues arising from what we've heard uh, so far, and so, some of what I was originally going to ask has been covered. But the two outstanding issues, um, if we could describe them, that is, first of all, Lord Devon, you referred to a, a an apparent absence of certain detailed information in relation to the state of, state of play in the Republic of Ireland. So I'm wondering, can, can efforts be made by... Um, government, UK government, Northern Ireland executive, uh, and of course, uh, the, the Republic of Ireland government, to try and overcome any barriers that there are to... to well, I think that the... Um, uh, first of all, I don't think the barriers, if I may say so, I don't think the barriers are purposeful ones. I think it's much more that the um, situation is that the Republic of Ireland has not yet produced its programme for reaching its um, determined end. Um, and uh, obviously, the sooner that it does that, the easier it will be for us to make sure that we can work uh, with it in the cross-border issues, which we perfectly respect and which we're very willing to be as helpful as possible to the Northern Irish executive as, as we can. But I, I, so I'm not really blaming them. I'm just saying we don't know. Therefore, I can't comment on it. Okay, that's fine. Second thing is the, you referred there to the uh, sixth carbon budget and, and the publication of the, of the report on that. There, there were some suggestions that the report wasn't able to capture at all levels. Uh, positive impacts being made uh, right across the agricultural sector, particularly in some of the smaller farms that may not be captured by departmental assessments, for example. Um, can efforts be made to ensure that we're capturing as much information as possible? Uh, and that therefore could be a positive contribution towards reaching the targets. Well, I, I believe we are capturing as much information as possible. Um, I'm very, very much on your side for making sure that we do do that. And indeed, when I first became the chairman, um, I refused to publish a document on agriculture because I said that the baseline, the figures, 
were not of the comparable quality of those that we had for industry and building and other matters. And I, I, I do know I'm very much a supporter of the agricultural community as I'm part of it. Uh, all I'd say is you have to be careful about people promising things which they haven't measured properly. And that's why measurement for me is absolutely central. And it was only when DEFRA produced a proper baseline for, uh, the, for England that I was prepared to opine on England. And the same is true. We are watching all the time. And the better that the uh, uh, executive, the North Island, um, is able to uh, refine uh, information and, and, and get more information, uh, the better we will use it. Uh, we are absolutely committed to using the best information. I think we have uh, more than enough to have made the decisions which we made in the sixth carbon budget, or I would have said so, but we need to go on doing that because, of course, the situation changes all the time. And the more we know about sequestration and the more can measure sequestration, then the more we will be able to encourage it. And that may well be one of the things that in the north of Ireland will make a huge difference. That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Morris? Morris? Yep. Yes, Morris? thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Lord Devon, for returning to uh, address the committee. You've brought up some very valid points here today, and I've heard some of the rest of the members. So I don't want to repeat anything, but uh, we in Northern Ireland have a delicate balance to, to, to uh, try and work out for climate change between our agri-food sector. And uh, while we seem to be focusing mainly on farming practices here today, there are other issues at play, like industry, haulage, lack of real infrastructure, reforestation, uh, lack of reintroduction to, to produce uh, wetlands and sequestration. Uh, measures that we could take. So there's an awful lot of hard work to do. But I was very interested to know that at the moment we don't have any indication or any information on what the Republic of Ireland, Ireland are doing to uh, reach their targets. So therefore we can't really do a comparison. And I know the chair had alluded to it at the start of the meeting that we should be working closely with our neighbours in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and, and, and without that information, I find it difficult to understand how we can measure what we're trying to do here in the UK against what they're trying to do there in the Republic of Ireland when there is no information available. Can I have your thoughts on that, please, Lord Devon? Well, I think there may come a time when that is important. At the moment, there is so much to be done on both sides of the border that whatever you do, frankly, is not going to make uh, it's not going to be very much more informed by knowing what's happening elsewhere. Because mm -hmm. the things, as you rightly say, when you were making those that list, the things that need to be done are things which the um, Northern Irish Executive can certainly do itself, and so can the people of Northern Ireland. Um, and you used to mention the thing which is really important, the, the re-wetting of peatlands, the uh, stopping of using of peat 
um, and the sequestration which then results is hugely important because as you know the problem with peat is that if you degrade peat brown land then it becomes a net exporter of emissions if you have good peatland, it's a major sequestrator. So you get, it, it, it's a really big change if you can recreate peatlands or protect peatlands from the way it's being used, which is one of the reasons why um, the Climate Change Committee has said very firmly that we should ban the use of horticultural peat, uh, peat in every circumstance, because the quicker we do that, the more, the, more we, the more we get out of the ludicrous situation we're in at the moment, which, we're, which is that the government is providing money to restore peatlands and letting people destroy peatlands at the same time. That must be balmy. So that is one example. There is a great deal that you can get on with now. I am sure that um, uh, the Republic is going to have to produce all this information and it will be because every country in the European Union has to, uh, partly because of the very hard work that the British did when they were members of the European Union. Um, and therefore, that will come forward. In the meantime, the more you can do won't make a difference to what happens there. But once they do say these things, you can begin to work much more closely together. But that's the thing for you, and it's got to have the political will. And um, as you know, I am a great believer in cooperation and working together, which is why I was so strong a supporter of our membership of the European Union. Because in the end, you've got to work together, because otherwise you collapse together. We all have to find ways of working together. And so we've got to find new ways now. And I hope very much that you will be in the vanguard of, of, of those new ways. Thank you very much, Lord Devon. Thank you indeed, sir. Okay, Morris. Thank you, Morris and Lord Devon. Patsy? Patsy? Okay, Lord Devon, uh, great, great to see you again. And thanks very much for all the, the knowledge and passion that you bring to this particular topic. Um, if I could just, uh, clearly those of us who do represent rural constituencies with, with uh, agri-food sector, a uh, key element of it, and uh, still nonetheless with uh, a clear notion that this climate change issue must be tackled. Um, none of us as elected representatives, I think, want to chart a course which is going to be an impossible one to deliver and just leaves us in a, in a more difficult situation, uh, both not being able to deliver it, but secondly, uh, creating problems for those who have been pressurized into delivering it. Uh, and, and I hear very, very clearly what, what you're saying on that front and uh, the course that you've charted for the North here and the pragmatism that you bring with that. Can you just... Uh, we were talking earlier there about just transition and there will be communities, there will be sectors that may feel and we're already, those of us who are elected are receiving emails from some of those sectors and individual uh, farm families who do feel that um, they're going to be pressurised. How do you see the just transition for those sectors and those uh, farm families as, as we move gradually towards meeting these targets. And then on the flip side, um, the opportunities that may exist commercially uh, for businesses as we move to achieve these targets as well, please. 
Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you should mention opportunities because for me, the reality is that as is happening already so fast, the world comes to realize the threat of climate change. Um, and in that sense, the cry from Extinction Rebellion, whatever else you may think about it, is absolutely right. We are threatened in a existential way. Mm -hmm. As people become more and more aware of that, they will be demanding of the people they trade with, the people that they buy from, the people that they supply, that they are playing their part. And if the North Island shows that it is playing its part in this whole process um, and is really determined to win through, then it seems to me this will give to your products, whether they are agricultural or otherwise, uh, a necessary um, uh, claim. I don't think, I think more and more people will not be buying what they think is not making the contribution. And even though the individual may not do that, the large company is going to have to do that because it's going to have to justify that to its investors. That's the big change. The investors are now saying, if you want my money, I've got to know that you're sustainable because I've got to know that that money isn't going to be wasted in, um, for example, stranded assets. I've, 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 and you've only got to see what's happened to um, uh, the, uh, I think, fascinatingly in the United States, ExxonMobil, by far one of the worst performers on this, has now had three directors forced on it because it is not doing the job properly. Now, that's an amazing thing to happen in the United States, but it has happened because the people who put the money up for ExxonMobil don't want to lose it. And so we're going to have that opportunity, which is that if we meet those requirements, we'll get the investment. The thing I do have to say is that I am even-handed on this. I want to say to the Greens, I don't believe that it is sensible to ask people to do something which they can't do. But I want to say also to the representatives, particularly of the farming community, that we have to be extremely careful at not always explaining that there's this reason or that reason why this or that farm or these or those people can't do it. I'm afraid people have got to step up to it. And uh, I, I will take quite a lot of convincing that people can't do what we say they can do, because that's the basis upon which we have proceeded. And much as I love the farming community, as I talk to my farmers that live round about me, um, they will all point to three or four who've always got a good reason for not doing what they ought to do. And I'm sure you could, although you wouldn't, because they probably want their votes. But I just say to you, it is worth remembering, we've got to make the whole community recognise that in order to be able to earn the balance which we're talking about in the rest of the United Kingdom, we've actually got to do 100% of the 82% you're asked to do. Then on the question of just transition support, um, had you any thoughts particularly on that? Well, I'm, I'm, I think government, we, the Climate Change Committee demanded of the um, uh, British Treasury uh, that it produce a document 
showing uh, what the costs would be and how they would fall, and also what the government would do to make those costs just. And I mean, let me take a sort of non-controversial thing as far as agriculture, and let's just take um, housing. I mean, it's quite clear that the housing stock is way behind the quality and standards for heating that we need. Now, there are many people who will be able to make those changes, but we'll have to help them by making money available for them to borrow, by uh, uh, helping, by giving them advice. One of the things that's so difficult, I've, I've recently uh, bought a, um, a new heating arrangement with um, a, an air source heat pump. I've also bought an electric car. Buying an electric car is the simplest thing in the world because car companies will want to sell you something and therefore they will do it in the most simple way. And if you have the money, you do it and you buy it. Buying a, a um, heat pump is one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. And after all, I ought to get the best advice because I'm chairman of the Climate Change Committee. I can only tell you, it's murderous. Now I've got it, it's extremely good. But we've got to help people do these things. So it's not just money for the just transition. It is you can't expect Mrs. McGuinness in some uh, uh, village in Fermanagh, you can't expect her to know about climate change. She needs to be able, when she's changing her boiler, to have proper advice in an easy way. That's what has to happen. And so it's money, yes, we've got to help people to do the job, but we've also got to help people by the resource of knowledge. Okay, thank you. Um, has she been in touch with you as well? Right, folks, uh, we're going to move around here to uh, Thank you. Uh, j just on the topic of County Fermanagh, Lord Devon, we're, we're moving to County Fermanagh now for, to bring in, uh, to, to, to bring in, not, not Mrs. McGuinness, but Mrs. Mrs. Barton, so uh, we're going to, we're, sorry, I should also say we're, we're, we're running extremely tight for, for, for time as well, so just uh, keep it uh, succinct as possible, bearing in mind the importance of the issue. Thank you. Okay, thank you, and thank you, Lord Devon, for your comments and living and having living in Fermanagh and being brought up in Fermanagh, so I, I know it well. Um, just, to, uh, just two questions. How much consideration have you given to the UK food security in the CC advice that you've given us? And this, and as a as further as an. Uh, further advance than that, would you be happy if the UK was forced to increase meat and dairy imports due to restrictions in the UK? You know, if animals, if we have less animals and less food production. Well, um, food security is absolutely crucial, and the last thing we want to do is to import uh, goods from elsewhere not least because the carbon footprint of the uh, United Kingdom animals is one of the lowest in the world. And almost any uh, kind of import from anywhere else would be to import something with a higher carbon footprint. I am absolutely clear that the government has got to make sure that there is no importation from countries which are not meeting the same standards as we are. I have made that absolutely part of what the Climate Change Committee says. 
We are unanimous and united on that front. We are therefore very concerned about the uh, proposed discussion about Australia. We do not believe that we can have trade agreements which do not include standards which are the same as those standards that we are asking for British farmers. And that is not just a that's not just a matter of just transition. It's a matter of climate change fact. If we don't do that, then we are going to increase the emissions because we will provide markets for countries which are not meeting the requirements. And I'm sorry that it's difficult, and I know that the government doesn't like it, but it is one of the results of committing yourself to this. And so it's no good saying, well, we're going to make exceptions for this country or that country. I'm afraid we have to have an absolute acceptance of what the government promised ministers one after another in the House of Lords and outside. I heard them in the House of Lords personally. Outside, they publicly promised that there would, that we would have the highest standards of safety, of uh, climate change demands, all those things, and we would not allow the import import of goods which would undermine that market. And for me, that is a crucial part of, of what we have to do. And uh, then to talk about the number of animals, it is remarkable how we have reduced significantly the um, uh, carbon uh, 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 footprint of the United Kingdom ruminant uh, 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 team, whether it's sheep or, or cattle. And we've done it because uh, by better breeding, by uh, better health, uh, by higher production, we have actually had fewer animals. And that has done a great deal of good. Uh, we are not talking about uh, attacking meat. And again, I'd like to make this point very clear. The Climate Change Committee believes that in the next 10 years, we should reduce the amount of meat that we eat by 20%, but that we ought to eat better meat. I, I never understand why people don't, um, don't sort of do this link. The, the meat that is largely produced in the north of Ireland is good meat, pasture-fed, and that's the sort of meat that people ought to eat. And we ought to choose that. And if we eat a little bit less, and 20% isn't much, you eat a little bit less, but you pay a bit more for that which you eat, seems to me that that is the answer for the farmer. But it's also the answer as far as health is concerned, because what we're asking for is significantly less than the health experts are demanding. And the reason we ask for this and we don't go to extremes, it's this. We need um, ruminants. A mixed agriculture is crucial if we are going to return the uh, um, fertility to the soil. Veganism is not the answer. And vegans should not use climate change as an excuse to push their entirely different program. This is not the program that we are putting. We're saying that people are reducing the amount of meat they eat for all kinds of reasons, not least their health. And we think that is necessary 
but we want them to eat good meat, better meat, and rather less of it. Actually, we should eat less altogether when you come to think about it. It's not just meat. We are, all, we are overeating, um, and that we have to accommodate. The way to accommodate is to produce better food that is more nutritious. I mean, the serious thing is that the five a day is worth less today than it was 40 years ago because those vegetables are less likely to have the mix of trace elements and the like that they would have had 40 years ago. That's what we've done to our land. Um, that's what I mean about quoting the Pope's comment that climate change is symptom of what we've done to the world. And one of the things we've done to the world is to reduce the fertility of the soil and we have to recover that. We won't do that without animals, cattle and sheep. Okay, thanks for that there. Um, okay, and the last speaker, I say we're, we're running seriously out of time here, is William. Thank you. Thank you, and can I welcome Lord Dobson. I'm delighted, Lord Davin, to have you. Um, I'm a farmer all my life, so uh, I'm one of those people that wants to help and help make change. I think farmers in the main wants to help the environment, but of course they need advice on how to do so. Um, I admire your advice and your wisdom. I think given that uh, others talked about uh, being part of the UK and being a region of the UK does give us some flexibility in that by reaching 82% by 2050 means that the UK as a whole reaches that zero by 2050. So it is positive. Uh, I support fully uh, your advice. Other regions of the UK have accepted your advice and I hope Northern Ireland accepts that advice too. Thank you very much, Lord Devon. Well, thank you very much. Um, and I hesitate to do this uh, Doving, but I, I, I would just like to remind you that the other half of the advice is that if it is 82%, you've got to do it. You've Absolutely. actually got to do it. And, uh, that is the, that's the deal, if you like. Um, and that's why I am so determined not to offer something that you can't do. Uh, I think there is something wrong in that. I mean, I really mean morally wrong. You must not ask people to do things that they can't do. You must ask people to do things that are very stretchy. I mean, I've just come to London to welcome my sixth grandchild. And um, I watch my four children and their partners bringing up, well, their wives and husbands, then I went partners, wives and husbands are bringing them up, those children. And I, I, I notice that they're all determined to do one thing, which is to give them confidence to do more than they think they can do, but never to ask them to do something they can't do. Now, I think that it's curiously enough that that most intimate and most important part of life, bringing up children, should also be a lesson to how you deal with people generally. And what you must do is never underestimate them, never, some of those schools which never stretched the children properly because they never understood how much they could do, but you stretch them to the utmost, but never beyond it. And that's why 82% is going to be very difficult. But you can do it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, okay Lord Devon and um, Thomas, that was uh, very helpful and very informative, as always. Um, good seeing you again. So I hope you have a, a, nice, a nice day, and we'll be seeing you all again, okay?
Thank you very much. Right. Thank okay. you. Take care now. Thank you. Okay, members, we're going to move on swiftly to item number eight, evidence session from the Woodland uh, Trust on the uh, climate uh, the climate change bill. Uh, written briefing from the Trust at, uh, has been tabled. I want to welcome by Starleaf, Paul Armstrong, the Public Affairs Manager, and Dave Scott, the Estate and Project uh, Manager. And I want to invite you to the, uh, uh, brief the committee, and members will then ask you some questions thereafter. So Paul and Dave, you're very welcome this morning. Thank you very much. Um, good morning and thank you, Chair and Committee members, for the opportunity to discuss the Climate Change Bill um, and the role that trees and woods can play in addressing the climate and nature emergencies. Um, by way of quick introduction, I suppose the, the Woodland Trust, we're a UK-wide conservation charity. Um, we've been operating in Northern Ireland now for 25 years, and our work um, focuses primarily to create, protect and restore woodland for the benefit of people, benefit of people climate um, and nature. So our estate in Northern Ireland, it totals approximately 650 hectares, and this includes two recent acquisitions, one in the Belfast Hills and the other at Mourne Park near Kilkeel. And both those acquisitions will go some way to contribute towards uh, Northern Ireland addressing the climate and nature emergency. We also work with a wide range of partners on tree planting and woodland creation projects beyond our own estates. Uh, recent examples of that include our work with NI Water to plant a million trees across their estate in Northern Ireland, um, supporting local councils such as Belfast City Council um, and their One Million Trees project by providing funding from um, the Woodland Trust Emergency Tree Fund, um, a partnership with the LOXI Agency, NI Water and, and farmers to deliver riparian planting and wet wood creation along the River Fawton. Um, working with Belfast Hills Partnership um, and the Mourne Heritage Trust to create new way to native woodland and restore ancient woodland. So as you can see, partnerships are a huge part of what we do. Um, and we know that it's going to become a bigger part of what we do as we work towards a climate change uh, target in Northern Ireland. So when we do this, we also create employment. We, we create work for others as we contract all of our planting and maintenance work out as well. Before my colleague Dave and I take any questions, I want to cover some of the points contained in our written evidence. Um, and really to summarise, it can be broken down into two different parts. Um, firstly, um, it will be our views on a number of elements contained within the bill. And then secondly, just the role that trees and woods can play in fulfilling uh, various targets and measures within that bill. So as, as mentioned in our evidence, look, there's broad and well-evidenced consensus that our climate is, is changing, um, and our position is really based on that evidence um, that we have um, a, a climate emergency. However, we're also facing a nature emergency where changes to the climate are impacting on ecosystems, and if those ecosystems collapse, that's going to exacerbate the climate emergency. Um, and the, the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommends greater protection of restoration um, of ecosystems in order to meet the mitigation and adaptation um, objectives of the of the Paris Agreement. So at the Woodland at the Woodland Trust, we talk about the climate emergency um, and uh, and the nature emergency together. They're they're inextricably linked. And our view is that we don't have the resources to deal with climate change and biodiversity loss separately, um, and that requires a joint up approach using solutions that can help with both issues. Um, and planting and restoring and protecting our trees and woods is one of the most effective ways of doing that. So moving on to the net zero targets, um, in terms of the targets, um, Lord Deben's advice um, and his, his contribution has covered this in far greater detail and in a much more informed way than we could ever do. 
Um, but reaching net zero required a wide, will require a wide range of measures, many of which go beyond the role of trees and woods. Therefore, it's our position that we want to see an ambitious target um, for that to reduce greenhouse gases as soon as possible. Our role will be to support whatever that target is. We will plant, restore and protect trees in Northern Ireland to help meet whatever target is decided upon. Trees reduce greenhouse gas emissions, they take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they store carbon and they release oxygen. That carbon is stored until the tree dies or is cut down and either decays or is burnt. And some carbon um, from falling leaves is also stored in the soil, meaning that the entire ecosystem in the woodland plays an important role in locking up carbon, not just tree planting itself. This includes the roots, the leaves, deadwood, um, surrounding soils and any vegetation nearby as well. So our evidence, um, we, we, we do acknowledge the 82% target as stated by the, the Climate Change Committee. And we also note that the Climate Change Committee have highlighted the 94% reduction um, as, a, as a more ambitious target as well. So we, we would recommend an ambitious target primarily to, to kind of support development um, of our understanding. And I know Lord David had touched on the more we know about sequestration, the more it can be encouraged. Um, so we would encourage an ambitious target just to drive further research and development of solutions or, or understanding of how we could meet um, net zero as soon as possible. There are areas of the methodology as well used by the Climate Change Committee that could be refined. Um, and within the sphere of woods and trees, um, we, we, we would look at yield class modelling. And that's basically um, the amount of trees planted and how much carbon they can sequester um, and those predictions that are made and they're primarily at the moment using a commercial methodology and we would look at maybe developing that out further. So in terms of the, the climate action plan contained within the bill, we support the requirement of that. That provides the impetus for, for the overriding objective. And we've all, already mentioned the climate and nature emergencies being linked. And therefore, we really strongly encourage the inclusion of the biodiversity targets uh, for that purpose. We also would be really keen to make sure that we don't have a dash for carbon. We can't just try and address the carbon issue or the climate emergency without making sure that we're looking after our environment at the same time. So nature-based solutions um, and an appropriate tree planting can support biodiversity targets as well as um, improving water, air and soil quality. They're also included within those targets. It should be noted as well that we do a lot of outreach work with farmers um, and that does focus on how we can plant trees and farms to improve water, air and soil quality. Um, and after I've kind of covered my key points, my colleague Dave can provide more detail on how this has, has worked out on the ground. So trees will play an important role. They already do and they will play an important role as we tackle the climate and nature emergencies. But it should be noticed, noted that Northern Ireland has the lowest amount of tree cover in the UK, in Ireland and the EU. We also are working towards a target of 12% tree cover in Northern Ireland uh, by 2050. Um, that was set in the forestry strategy in 2006 and we're currently consistently falling short of even that target. To meet 12% tree cover by 2050, we would have about 2,000 hectares of tree plant in a year. At the moment, um, we're falling very short of this. And as we miss the target each year, we're, we're building that target f further and further up. So in 2018, 19, we planted 240 hectares of new woodland in Northern Ireland. And in 2019, 20, we planted 200 hectares. So just gives you an idea of how low um, the levels are compared to what would be required if, to, if we're to even meet 12%. And I suppose just to highlight 
where um, that 12% sits within recommendations. The Climate Change Committee have recommended UK tree cover is between 17 and 19% by 2050. So 12% tree cover from Northern falls even below that. So we would like to see an even more ambitious target, but we also need to see a renewed focus on woodland creation to even meet the target of 12%. There are a few things then that we would need to really bear in mind when we're considering woodland expansion. So we need to make sure that they capture both the, the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis together. We shouldn't be creating new woods solely to meet emission reductions targets. And ambitious targets shouldn't result in reducing or tree planting standards to accelerate planting. Increasing tree cover in Northern Ireland will require a mix of approaches. Um, these include creating native woodland, as I've discussed, natural regeneration, which is allowing woodland um, to, to, to regenerate naturally at their own pace, sustainable and commercial or sustainable commercial plantations, agroforestry, urban trees, hedges, and individual countryside trees. And those mix of, of, of uh, tree planting solutions is to minimize the risk of any single approach failing. We also have to factor in the longevity of trees and woodland ecosystems. We also need to protect our existing woods and trees. It's not good enough just to keep planting more trees. We need to manage our existing stock. Um, we, we welcome, you know, one of, one of the things to bear in mind is that um, Areas of specific or special scientific interest, ASSI, Woodland and Northern Ireland, only 1% is in favourable condition. 61% of it is in unfavourable condition. We need to do more to manage our woodland better, to protect our woodland, as well as creating new woodland. So moving on then to, uh, I've highlighted really that woods and trees are a really good way of managing both climate change and, and biodiversity loss. But trees require land and land is a finite resource. And one of the things that we would be sort of advocating for is a land use strategy and sort of draw your attention to the Scottish Climate Change Act that did provide a provision for a land use strategy in Scotland. And this would help balance competing priorities. There's a number of different actions going to be required beyond trees and woods. We're going to need peatland restoration. We're going to have to uh, change our, how, how agriculture is carried out. There's renewable energies. There's infrastructure needs to go in. That all is going to have... Um, different pressures on land. So we need to have a land use strategy for Northern Ireland that's informed by a target from the Climate Change Act and then can inform the sectoral plans that are contained within the bill. Land use in itself is not good enough to be just contained within a sectoral plan. It is so wide reaching, it needs to cover everything and it would make sure that any plans within different sectors are talking to each other and underpinned by the same strategy. So we would be looking at that and we would encourage that to look at ecosystem services. Basically, what, what can the land deliver and, and what can we enhance within the land to deliver greater carbon sequestration or improve biodiversity? And then that would talk to how all the different sectors can, can feed into that. And finally, really, we're going to need more trees. That's a given. Um, but we're also going to be in competition with other countries for trees, um, including the Republic of Ireland. And it's really important that trees grown or, or planted in Northern Ireland are grown in Northern Ireland we can't risk important trees from elsewhere. So that means that we need to encourage our local growers. We need more large scale growers in Northern Ireland. We need to make sure that the trees we're gonna plant are grown in Northern Ireland. And we need to make sure that we do not import trees from further afield. There's a risk that if we do that, we bring in diseases. And we've seen that with ash dieback, for example, and that will set us back rather than move us forward. So we shouldn't be dashing to just import trees from further afield because that in turn is a short-term kind of solution, 
but longer term we'd be paying the price with diseases um, and setting back our, our, our aims uh, for, for climate change. So that's kind of a very quick overview of our position um, on, on, on where we're at. And I would welcome any questions from the, the committee um, and Dave and I will do our best to answer those. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Paul. That was a very um, comprehensive briefing. Um, you mentioned that we need an ambitious target and in your um, document you state that we need to act now with radical changes. Um, I just wanted to um, ask you do, you, do you believe that the, the UK CCC recommendations of 82% reduction uh, by 2050, would that constitute the radical change that you refer to and the ambitious targets? So I suppose, referring back to Lord Deben's contribution, um, he's made it clear that 82% will require um, you know, radical changes. It, you know, it, it, it's definitely not as ambitious as net zero by 2050 or 2045. Um, we're certainly not the, the experts on what a target should be. We're simply here to, to tell you how we can contribute to whatever that target is. Um, so I would, you know, I would, I wouldn't be in a position to answer whether or not um, it's ambitious or not. I would kind of defer to Lord Deben's advice as, as the expert in that field. To, um, you, you, you made reference to the need for more trees and local growers. I know this topic was, was raised in the Chamber um, recently. It was, I think it was actually Mr Wells at EEP raises about the importance of having um, indigenous species. Uh, would you agree with that there? Would, that, would you see that as important that we, uh, any replanting that we carry out, would, um, we would use uh, indigenous uh, species of trees? So yes, the woodland trust. I mean, when we're when we're creating our our, our woodlands, um, so for example, where you know our, our new sites in the Belfast Hills um, that we've acquired for woodland creation, we would be uh, creating new native woodland because that's the most uh, beneficial both for nature and for climate, and that's a mix of native species, uh, broadly species, and some some um, coniferous species such as Scots pine. So yes, we would encourage. Um, in you know, we talk about native woodland creation. Um, but I have kind of highlighted as well in our evidence that there's a mix um, and the Woodland Trust would, would advocate that there's a mix of different uh, planting um, required. So, you know, there is there is a need for commercial forestry um, and that that, that that is done responsibly. Um, and as we reduce carbon um, in building by substituting, say, concrete with timber, we're going to need to use responsibly sourced and FSC certified timber. So in terms of the work that the Woodland Trust do and the work that we do with farmers and our outreach work, that would all involve planting native species. But beyond it being indigenous, it also needs to be grown locally and sourced locally. So, you know, oak is a native species, but important that that species of oak from, say, Holland, that's not good enough because that risks bringing in disease. Um, so we would say that not only does it have to be a native species, it should be grown locally as well. Before we move around the room, you mentioned that we have the lowest tree cover in the EU. Um, is that is that primarily due to the um, like the destruction or the removal of our woodlands and them not being um, um, repeated or not being replanted? Or what would be the primary reason why we are the lowest in the EU in terms of coverage? I don't have an actual. <laughs> I don't have a, an answer for you clearly on that one. I don't know if Dave, if you would have anything on that there. I mean, it maybe goes back quite quite far back in history. Yes, it, it does. Uh, I mean, there's been historically uh, clearance of woodland uh, across the island of Ireland um, beyond uh, plantation. And, and yes, you're right. It, it was a case that these, these woodlands were, were never replaced. 
and it's it's been marked th- through history. Um, you know, since the first people arrived and, and started clearing the land for agriculture, and then with industrial revolution, um, but we've kind of lost the woodland culture on this island, and that um, regeneration of woodland uh, just has not happened. It's been all take and and no putting back. Well, thank thank you very much. I'm going to have a number of speakers here. Uh, uh, Rosemary Barton. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Paul and Dave for your contributions. Thank you. Um, you spoke about we need twelve percent cover by 2050. What is the percentage of cover we have at the moment? And what is the breakdown in that cover in in relation to indigenous species and non-indigenous? Dave? Yeah, in terms of the current cover, it's sitting in around 8% at the moment. And of that, you know, the native woodland or, or semi-naturalized uh, woodland is, uh, I believe, in around the, the kind of two, three percent of that. You know, so so the bulk of the the, the woodland that we have in Northern Ireland is uh, what we would consider non-native woodland, uh, with the majority of that being commercial forestry, which, as Paul has said, you know, does have a place, um, you know, for for sustainable uh, supply chains. Um, but what we really need to do is have a, a real focus on the native woodland creation. And as part of the mix of that 12%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you've spoke about uh, the focus on woodland creation. What are you, what are you doing or what do you, what would you advise to be done to try and increase our, increase our native species in setting up more, shall we say tree farms or whatever to supply the species? How would you expect, how what could what advice would you say to to how we could progress that? And I think um, if we can demonstrate that you know locally we have set these ambitious targets, and as Lord Devon was saying earlier, that we set ambitious targets and therefore we have to meet them, that we can demonstrate that there will be a supply chain, you know, for uh, locally grown uh, native trees. I mean, at the moment, uh, Woodland Trust, you know, we we have um, a million trees that we take from uh, the Republic of Ireland because we simply cannot get them locally sourced on, on this side of the border. Um, and occasionally we do have to import from, from GB as well. You know, so I think we can demonstrate, and that's just the Woodland Trust, that's not all the forestry agents that are, are working outside of, of our remit. You know, so I think we can demonstrate the supply chain is there. Um, I think we need more local expertise and, um, you know, the likes of Invest NI seeing this as an opportunity for inward investment and future employment through green jobs. Yeah, so you're basically talking about recruitment towards getting people to set up set up forestry nurseries. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. and one one last last question. It's in relation to carbon sequestration. Um, are the native species of trees much better at that than the non-native species? Um, yes, by and large. Um, you know, uh, historically, a, a native woodland, um, you know, should live forever. Essentially, put as 
you know, uh, a commercial woodland, yes, the, the carbon is locked in that timber that's, that then goes off to become a timber product. But, you know, our ancient woodlands have been locking and storing carbon for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And uh, the natural processes of a mixed, diverse native woodland means that it does, you know, constantly recycle that carbon, drawing in more. Whereas a single species commercial woodland, even if it's left to go to the fullness of its lifetime, won't regenerate in the same way and won't support as much biodiversity as a native woodland will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Morris? Thank you, thank you, Chair. Uh, Chair, I would just like to ask, you know, what are the main restrictions to increasing woodlands in Northern Ireland outside the availability of indigenous trees, uh, uh, particularly new plantings? I mean, 12% is not nearly enough forest cover going forward, nor is a UK target of 17%. I would like to see a minimum target of 25% for Northern Ireland at least. Uh, there are ways of achieving greater tree cover than just relying on planting new forests. Government departments across Northern Ireland hold a large swathe of land. Can we not plant more trees along our roadway or industrial estates or hospital settings along rail routes? And instead of cutting roadside verges, can we not let them grow and cut only at junctions and road ends? And can we not have more trees on roundabouts? Roundabouts that are also excellent sites, I think, for wildflower meadows. But uh, Personally, I'm not a, a fan of evergreens. Uh, I know they're better suited to certain t areas and soils in Northern Ireland and for sustainable forestry. But what are the plans for native trees like the ash and the oak, the birch, the hazel and others? The poor soil conditions loaded with ammonia and nitrates uh, have actually destroyed as, a, as, a, as opposed to uh, being enhanced. Do we need to have a look at the soil uh, that's flowing into it as well. And, and also a, a problem we have in Northern Ireland is the destructive trend that there has been in straightening and, and draining of waterways, uh, draining away all the natural floodplains, the wetlands, and how do we address that? Uh, I say that in the knowledge that every river and every waterway flowing into Loch Ness ends up coming through Coleraine on its way to the Atlantic Ocean. Many sources entering Loch Ness, but only one, the lower band, coming out. Those are just some of the some of the concerns I have. I know we haven't got time to take take all the concerns I have, but those are just some of them. I suppose I, there's maybe two sides to this, um, and, and and Dave can talk about our experiences on the ground. So yes, the availability of trees, like you highlight, is is one of the main obstacles, obviously, um, and we we need to address that by getting our trees sourced locally. But the other one there, the obvious one, is the availability of land, and you've touched on identifying different areas of land and. We, we have worked with Belfast City Council um, on their, their Million Trees project, which has identified 250 hectares within the city council area for tree planting. Um, and right, you know, it isn't forest, you know, purely forest planting, like you've highlighted there. It's, it's areas of green space that'd be suitable for planting. Um, and that also recognises the role that trees play in, in mitigating flood, flooding, you know, they can, uh, and keeping water and air quality um, higher as well. So. There's, there's working with public bodies. We're also working with NI Water to plant a million trees in their estate. So there is work going on, um, but we would always welcome further um, opportunities to identify more public land for, for more um, native tree planting. The other, the other side of that as well is that we're working with landowners, um, and I touched briefly on our, our evidence about the work we're doing in the Fawton Valley. Um, 
uh, you know, we planting wet woods with farmers, um, and that's pre- preventing sediment getting into the River Fodden, um, and it keeps the water quality high. But also that, that tree planting is contributing to, to, to climate change mitigation by absorbing carbon. And we do work with farmers. We've done work with farmers in the glens of Antrim as well to do tree plans that identify opportunities for those farmers to plant trees on their land um, or, or hedgerows as well, which are which are basically linked corridors of trees, basically. So, you know, there is work that we're doing. Our outreach work focuses on, on identifying opportunities for land outside of our own estates. Um, and I suppose Dave could probably give you some examples of, of the obstacles that those landowners are facing um, when you know we can draw the plan up with them, but then turning the plan into reality, there there are various steps required, and and I think that you know farmers would do want to do the right thing, um, and our experience is that they do want to, to to improve the environment. It's just that there are things that could be improved, maybe to make that that happen. Um, Dave, Dave, maybe can provide a bit more insight on that. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Paul. Um, yes, as Paul says, you know farmers are. And other landowners are wanting to do the right thing and in our experience in terms of the the trees and woods element uh, of that is that if we can show the benefits of trees and woods not just for climate and nature but as actually as part of the working infrastructure of of the farming business um, then farmers are, are much more inclined to 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 get on board um, i mean the majority of the land in northern ireland ownership of the agricultural community you know um but we've been doing as paul says some some really good work in terms of hedgerow creation um so those those corridors riparian planting is is one certainly in the northwest after the 2017 floods you know has really gained traction and what riparian uh, or riverside planting does is actually stop nutrients and um, pollutants uh, reduces them entering the water course, but also stabilizes those side banks so that the farmer's most important resource, the soil, doesn't literally wash away. Um, but also we are finding uh, farmers coming to us and uh, looking at the, the forestry grant schemes. And the more attractive these become, uh, the, the recent small woods grant has, has been a real game changer, you know, because we've been able to reduce the 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 block size of an individual woodland down to 0.2 hectares. You know, that is a fundable uh, planting scheme now. So we can look at the farm and look at it much more strategically. So we can sort of say 0.2 of a hectare over there is actually going to help with the prevailing wind coming down the glen, you know. So getting these trees and woods, as I say, as part of the kind of green infrastructure of the farm um, means that farmers don't see tree planting as taking land away from the farm, it's actually they're introducing another piece of infrastructure, just the same as a laneway, a fence, a cleaning unit, you know, it is all part of the part of one thing. Um, and once we've actually engaged with these farmers, and that's the big thing, is the engagement. And as, as Lord Demon was saying earlier on, you know, if people don't have the information and they don't have good information, then how can they make informed choices and the right choices? I should also add that the Aforestation Forum, um, as part of the Forest of Our Future program, is is looking to identify you know more public land for for tree planting across departments as well. So, um, you know that that's an important piece of work. And again, a land use strategy might help inform that even further um, as we move forward. Okay, thanks, me, Chair. Thanks, Thank Paul. You, thanks, Dave. Thank you, Morris. Thank you. Uh, okay, John, there. 
Thank you, Chair. Can I thank Paul and Dave as well for, for that presentation of the information they've provided us with? Um, I think they're aware that I, I'm looking forward to seeing some of their plans for the Belfast Hills later today, actually. Um, I, I may have more questions for the future. Um, uh, very briefly, Chair, the, the uh, Department has announced uh, £300,000 funding strand for the uh, water, water Quality Improvement Strand for the Environmental Challenge Fund. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, a matter that's very important to me, uh, community engagement and getting the community involved, and you um, use the term outreach. Um, what, what advice could you give the committee in relation to trying to encourage the department to further enhance that outreach and, and help it grow across the, the sectors and the areas? Um, I think if uh, I can jump in on that one, uh, I think in terms of the, the department, and it's it's not for us to tell the department how to do their business, but you know, in terms of our own experience and what, and what we've found is actually going out into the communities. Um, now, with the current restrictions, this has been curtailed quite a bit, yeah. but having physically people on the ground to walk the land with a landowner and talk through the options is what what gets our projects over the line uh, through the outreach work. Um, having having a distant um, relationship with the landowner um, does does not help us in our work. You know, we could we could post everything on our website and um, do a few agricultural shows, which we do do. But unless we back that up with with boots on the ground, then you know we find that the the appetite uh, starts to wane on what yeah. we want. To um, a, a point of interest, and it's as I go back to my previous point, landowners and and potential woodland, people that want to create woodland, they need that support, that advice, and that good quality information uh, all the way through the process. Um, and you know, if the department um, you know was to bring in organisations like ourselves, RSPB, Ulster Wildlife, uh, you know, National Trust. You know, as part of a partnership approach for climate and nature, you know, to do that outreach work and engagement, you know, um, I'm sure all organisations would be open to that conversation. That's very useful answer, David. Thank you. But I suppose more specifically, um, are there currently sufficient funding streams to encourage community involvement um, in, in any planting any planting programs that can take place? I mean, where the um, Forest for Our Future program. Uh, I'm trying to break that down to how much is targeted at getting the community involved in these planting schemes and therefore having ownership of the schemes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, there, there could be more to be done in terms of, of community planting um, and especially, you know, on if we're talking about, you know, the public estate as well, you know, and getting those communities involved with taking ownership of, of a small woodland, say, plant, plant within a, a, a housing scheme, you know, on housing executive land. Um, you know, we ourselves uh, have used to have a scheme for uh, communities and school groups where they could gain free trees from, from the Woodland Trust. Um, but because of uh, import issues and tree supply, we've, we've had to pause that uh, funding stream for Northern Ireland. So if that could be replaced by something from, from central government, that would be very welcome. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, we'll move around to William. William? 
Patsy, then come back to William whenever the technical. Um, William, are you muted, maybe? I can. I've got you now. Oh, got, got, you. Now, yeah. got you, William. Got you. Yeah. Already getting unmuted, just in <laughs> relation to incentives and uh, to encourage uh, tree planting. Uh, you did say that the area that was aided was reduced. Uh, do, do you find that there is a, a big uptake in relation to uh, the incentive to plant trees? Um, yeah, yes, we have, and and it's been more of a case of that it means that different types of farming models um, can now be eligible for tree planting. So, you know, with the average uh, size of, of a farm in Northern Ireland being relatively small, you know, the um, the previous um, forest expansion scheme, which hopefully will be opening up again soon, which is a good grant, you know, the, the minimum threshold was, was three hectares. Or more, you yeah. know, for, for a small farming unit, that is maybe too big a leap, you know, uh, to take. Um, and also, landowners can can um, make multiple applications, you know. So if this year they want to do 0.2 of a hectare, they see how it works. They they like um, what they see. In five years' time, they actually decide. Well, actually, maybe I will go for that three hectare block somewhere else on the farm, you know. So. Um, but the Spoids grant really, really has been a, a huge benefit, and um, when it opened earlier this year, um, certainly f through the project areas I was working in, we got a big uptake. That's okay. Thank you. Thank you, William. Um, over now to Patsy, my Ulster. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, gentlemen, for your time. Um, just as. Um, something that I've come across quite a bit, um, and it's, it's COVID-related. Uh, you'll probably be aware that over this last, say, 15 months, there has been a huge increase in um, house adaptations, and as a consequence of that, wood has gone into serious demand, and the prices of wood has gone up. So can you tell me just in, in terms of, if you like, global markets, um, is there, is there anyone who's keeping an eye on, if you like, the levels of, of wood that's been cut and the tree, the, the afforestation to balance that out before we even move to the the necessary afforestation? Like I'm there, we were talking earlier there about plantation times. Where I live is Ballandary, which is Palia and Dilla, the townland of the oak. This apparently pre plantation times was just covered with oak trees and now it's. It's just farmlands and a few oaks about. Um, but could you tell me, is there, back to that original question, the science of it all and the demand for, for wood and timber, and who's keeping an eye on that? Who's trying to balance it out? And then the other bit about the, the tree planting and the increased tree planting, and William's point there about the incentivization of farmers to do that, potentially within even the context of, of a climate bill. Um, <clears throat> yes, in terms of you know uh, timber production and and our use of timber, I mean the UK is one of the biggest importers of of timber in the EU. You know, so the percentage that we import compared to the percentage that we produce is is way out of kilter. You know, um, now in terms of um, meeting our kind of being self sufficient, 
in timber production. I mean, that's why the Forestry Commission was set up in the first place after the same okay. you know, uh, and it is the Forestry Commission and obviously our own forest services as part of uh, that group of bodies that mm-hmm. look at, you know, the, the level of timber production and, and uh, how much we import, you know, and, yes. and that's why we are kind of uh, advocating, you know, that uh, sustainable forestry for timber production mm-hmm. is included uh, and looked at carefully, uh, you know, so we don't want to eradicate commercial forestry. We want to increase commercial forestry, but in a sustainable way, um, but not robbing Peter to play mm-hmm. when it comes to our, our native woodlands as well. So that mm-hmm. is a new forestry strategy, which would, you know, uh, and as part of that of, of a land use strategy means that we can do a bit for climate and nature, um, but also in terms of doing a bit for climate, increase in our sustainable timber production locally as well. <clears throat> and in terms of the incentivization uh, for, for farmers, I mean, <clears throat> we're currently in a position where if a farmer or landowner who is currently getting you know, a single farm payment decides off their own back uh, and at their own expense that they're going to create a woodland on their farm, they will actually lose their single farm payment on that mm-hmm. road, as if they go down a, a grant-funded route, you know, so some form of data grant, uh, or if they're meeting a, an EU directive, such as the Water Framework Directive, um, they will keep their single farm payment for, for, for the next 20 years. I think in terms of incentivizing farmers, yes, we need to do more, but we also need to do more so we don't teach. Hey, can, can I take away that impetus if they yeah. want to? Mm-hmm. We need to see these um, natural habitats within the farm as part of the farming model. Yes. Um, or, you know, um, can be seen as, as part of the working farm and therefore should be you know, public money for public goods is, is kind of the phrase. That I, just very, very briefly, um, the the animals that live within those those woodlands, like say for example, do you, do you used to work with the likes of RSPB around maybe the introduction of, of new birds uh, or the, the what, do you, is, is there a sort of a collegiate approach towards that? Um, yes, we, I mean, uh, the Woodland Trust and, and uh, all the other kind of major players in, in Northern Ireland, you know, and across the UK, we do work together, you know, we, we do have a forum where we mm-hmm. do together on a regular basis, um, and we're always learning from each other, but, yes. you know, if, the, the first thing we have to do is create the habitat, if we yeah. create the habitat, then nature on its own, can usually bounce back better than, than we could artificially try and try okay. and do, you know. So but the most important thing is to that create the new habitat, protect the habitat we've got, and the habitat we've got get into favourable condition. I mean, ancient woodland is the most biodiverse habitat on land, and mm-hmm. we have zero point zero four percent of the land cover in ancient woodland. You know, so we've got a huge amount of work to do in yes. the biodiversity crisis. Okay, thanks very much indeed for that. Well, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, oh, and last but not least, we've got Harry. Harry. Thank you very much, Chair. I think that's me on lock now. It's just, I'll just be quick. Yeah. Um, and our forest for our future, 
when are we likely to see the impact and benefit of these schemes? Um, yes, uh, very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it is going to take a long time before we see the full benefits uh, mm. of schemes. But, you know, one example in, in terms of, you know, the ecosystem services of trees, you know, uh, I don't know if you're uh, aware of the Pont Bren uh, study that was done in Wales, where mm -hmm. you know, started integrating trees and woods into their farming model on a catchment-wide approach. And they actually found after three years that, you know, a five-metre shelter built um, was actually reducing the overland flow within that field by 60 times, you know. Um, and the flood risk, um, you know, the peak flow uh, within that and the flood risk, you know, after after uh, uh, five years, I think it was, was reduced by 40%. You know, so um, you do get these initial um, uh, benefits almost straight away from, from the woodland creation. Um, in addition, you know, the species that woodland will support will change over the lifetime of the woodland, you know. So, you know, younger woodlands, we're gonna we're gonna be much more open, so it's gonna be a, a bigger draw for butterflies and other invertebrates. Um, whereas um, once it starts developing into a mature woodland, then you start building the, those species. But the initial planting of the woodland and just having it as a natural habitat, pretty much from day one, has has both climate and um, nature benefits. Okay. Yep, that's great. Thank you very much. And just another, even what about incentivizing tree planting beyond agriculture? What are we going on that? Thank you. Um, yes, uh, absolutely. And you know, and, uh, the work that we do does go beyond the, the farming community. You know, in terms of um, uh, local uh, schools, community groups, um, and and. Uh, just members of the public, you know. I mean, if if everybody that had a garden planted uh, a native tree in that garden, we would make a huge difference for for climate and nature. Um, and those incentivifications, you know, um, I think the grant systems that are there uh, could be improved, but are a really good start point. Um, I think they could potentially be opened up to beyond the agricultural community. Um, you know, at the moment, to, to avail of those grants, you do need uh, a, a farm business number, either a Category 1 or Category 2. Um, I think opening up some of these grant schemes to the wider landowning community um, would be of great, of great benefit. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, uh, free trees for um, schools and communities um, would also make a big difference, as well as the public estate. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, even someone with a large garden, a, a lot, you know, get a few people, you could, it would make a difference. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Chair. Thank right. you. No problem. How are you all the best, hey? Um, that's great. Uh, okay, then, um, I want to thank you, uh, Paul and Dave, for coming along this morning. Very helpful. Um, we're very grateful that you came along uh, to join us. Some, sometimes we veered a wee bit away from the climate change bill, which this was about, but I have to say it was very, very informative and very helpful. So, um, And you shall be very welcome back in the future as well. So thank you. Thank you. Right. Take care now. Okay, members, we're going to move now to uh, item nine, the agenda, which is oral evidence on the um, climate change bill from AFPE. And I want to refer members to the briefing paper from AFPE at page 56. 
and welcomed by Starleaf, Josephine Kelly, Acting Chief Executive, Dr Elizabeth McGowan, Director of Sustainable Agri-Food Sciences Division, and Peter Jean, uh, Jean Sean, Director of Environment and Marine Sciences Division. And I'd like to invite you to uh, commence the briefing of the committee. Uh, Chair, thank you very much indeed for the invitation to the committee today. Um, AFBI, the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute, um, is delighted uh, to be here because uh, sustainability, climate impact and environmental changes are very much part of our science. Uh, we are an arm's length body of Vera and we are the largest provider of uh, scientific services and we have a, a wide range of scientific research across AFBI. I will keep it brief though, the introduction today, because I know that you're, you're, uh, you're tight for time. Uh, I'm Josephine Kelly, Acting Chief Executive, and with me today is Dr. Elizabeth McGowan. And uh, Elizabeth um, is one of the directors uh, in AFBI, one of our science directors, and she is in charge of Sustainable Agri-Food Sciences Division. Peter Yan Sean is uh, also a director. Um, he is in the director of the Environment and Marine Sciences Division. And we've recently formed this new division of the Environment Marine Sciences Division um, in response, I suppose, to the growing demand for our services um, in, in relation to the environment. So that's a very brief introduction. What I'm going to do now is you've got the paper in front of you. I'm going to ask Elizabeth, first of all, to run through the, the sections that sort of are most relevant to her area of expertise. And then I'll ask Peter Yan to run through his areas. I just want to leave plenty of opportunity for questions from the committee today. So if I just hand over, Chair, if that's all right, to yeah. Dr. McGowan. Thank you, Josephine, and uh, delighted to be here. So in the interest of brevity, I'll just call out some of the key points um, from the paper aligned with the greenhouse gas story. Um, so, so as we reviewed the, the, the document, we are scientists, so we have commented in a, in a science capacity, and we recognise the climate bill targets um, net greenhouse gases as well as soil quality, water quality and biodiversity, and we'll set budgets aligned with those. So one of our first comments there was around the fact that you know, there's maybe a little bit of an improvement could be made to understand how the climate action, climate change bill might talk across to some of the other pieces of legislation, for example, um, that's currently underwritten into UK law, the, that would have been the Water Framework um, Directive and Habitats Directive, for example, in, in the UK. But with regards to the, the bill itself, the big question, and just listening to some of the commentary this morning, the big question is how do we get there? And, uh, you know, what we would, you know, from a science perspective, call out is the fact that Northern Ireland's current economic model is very dependent and, and generally suits well to a grass-based system and, and the livestock farming um, that, that suits that uh, grass-based system. And achieving the, the net zero goal over the next 25 to 30 years is going to be extremely challenging based on the literature and the documents that we have reviewed. And indeed, the consortia that we have been involved in, both from a, a, an east-west perspective as well as a north-south perspective. And indeed, we would call out that um, using all existing tools and, and current circumstances to meet net zero um, by 2045 will very, very likely involve a reduction in livestock numbers. Increases in productivity may offset some of that, but um, even the CCC's 82% target, which is backed up by SRUC's analysis, indeed calls out you know, a reduction in livestock numbers, albeit 
offset a little bit by um, productivity, the extent to which um, we, we need to measure. Just with regards to the CCC, um, we do recognise them as a competent authority to uh, provide that high-level strategic advice for the UK, and they do engage very widely. The other key point that we probably want to call out is the importance of to recognise the fact that greenhouse gases, methane, nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide, are all global gases. They're not local. The likes of ammonia, which is also a, an air quality issue for Northern Ireland, is a local gas and therefore has to be dealt with locally. But greenhouse gases, per se, are global gases. And as such, you know that global net zero goal is very, very important. And whilst Northern Ireland absolutely needs to make a significant contribution to that, we would highlight the fact that actually achieving that global and national goal of net zero is as important as achieving the, the local goal. Um, we, we'd also call out the importance of that trust just transition for Northern Ireland based on our economic model as we currently stand. And indeed, I was involved heavily in a, a UK-wide consortium um, through um, Centre for Excellence for Livestock, um, which really brought together the baseline knowledge, state-of-the-art knowledge, on how UK livestock industry could potentially work towards net zero. And the overriding consensus from that, which was a scientific um, consortium of 12 of us across the UK, very much came up that it's going to be very challenging due to the physical, biological nature of livestock, and particularly ruminants. Um, and, and whilst there are tools and solutions there at the minute that will take us some of the road, as well as the sequestration that we can realise from our land through forestry, agroforestry, hedgerows, etc., it is going to be very, very challenging. And therefore, you know, collaboration both within sectors, between sectors, between countries, east, west, north, south, internationally, it is going to be extremely important um, going forward. So those are just a couple of the key points that uh, we would like to highlight from the greenhouse gas and happy to come back on any questions. But I'll hand over to Peter Yan now, who will comment on the soil quality, water quality and biodiversity. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Jen. Um, so uh, I'm just going to briefly focus on um, the other target areas in the bill in relation to water quality, soil quality, and biodiversity. And as you heard from the Woodland Trust, um, uh, um, information this morning is that uh, that a healthy environment is is uh, central to any adapt adaptation policy and health mitigate against climate change impact. And it's in this context where these other, other um, targets in terms of soil, water quality and biodiversity are important considerations for climate change agenda. Um, and this healthy ecosystem then provide that resilience to, uh, to climate change effect uh, extreme weather, weather events and help us to cope with um, our existing position, but also help us improve things as we're going forward. And it's in that context that a holistic approach to it is very important. Um, these are all integrated um, and interlinked and is often associated with conflicting policies. Um, and uh, the solutions of those have to be seen um, in that integrated context. Uh, soil is, is obviously a very important natural resource in Northern Ireland, considering our dependency on um, the agriculture sector. 
and uh, good soil um, help us um, to uh, for productive, continue productive agriculture sector, but also uh, to help us to maximize the opportunities in terms of carbon, sequ carbon sequestration and above ground vegetation. And managing of our soils then um, is very important, providing a key role in managing carbon and in fact our nutrients, um, particularly phosphorus and nitrates um, within, within um, the farming and other land uses. Um, our previous studies on catchments has also shown that um, uh, soil sampling, wider soil sampling scheme would be, would be transformational um, to facilitate um, our management of our soils. Um, water quality is one of our main um, environmental challenges in Northern Ireland. And again, this interlinkage with soil use, soil use um, is important for this holistic and integrated approach that we need to look at um, th these things in, in an integrated manner to improve our waterways, um, including uh, measures such as uh, manure management uh, using circular economy. Um, but there's no single solution to the water quality um, challenges we face in Northern Ireland. Um, and therefore, this catchment-based approach is very important. Biodiversity um, is almost uh, a, a consequence of, of uh, good environmental health, and it's uh, almost being used as an indicator in protecting our environments. Um, again, help us to cope with uh, climate change mitigation adaptations, and as you heard from Lord Devon this morning, we touched on peatlands in particular. Um, it's managing of our peatlands and, and protecting those habitats that are important um, for uh, um, contributing to the objectives. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, I want to thank you for, for that briefing. Um, the number of members coming in. Um, there's just a couple of things I want to just say before we move around. Your uh, briefing made reference to the importance of collaboration and the, the transboundary the trans uh, issues, nature of the issues that we face here on this, on this island. Well, see, bearing that in mind, do you think it's sensible for this island uh, to have two separate goals and standards and approaches when it comes to setting targets for climate change? So, um, if I may, I think, the, uh, as I said and uh, in the paper, greenhouse gases are a global issue um, and uh, we are within the UK so we, we can't comment politically on, on what that is or isn't but the bottom line from a scientific perspective um, is that greenhouse gases are a global issue. I, there does need to be collaboration east-west as well as north-south to look at how best we can reduce those emissions and uh, work together to, um, as I say, both east, west, and north, south, and even further internationally to see how best we can actually address the overall global emissions, um, more so than even the very local Northern Ireland emissions. Okay. Well, well, if if the targets, if the targets which are um, which we're looking at in terms of the, of the department bills uh, was implemented. 
um, and bear in mind that that our, our food and uh, is all, uh, for example, is processed across the island, the island of Ireland. Do you think that effectively we, we effectively we'd have lower environmental standards here in the north? And do you think that have any impact for for trade with the rest, the rest of the EU or rest of the world? That that one part of the island would have different. No environmental standards. Certainly, you know the the food that would be coming from here would 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 be deemed to not come from uh, practices that are environmentally sustainable. But do you, do you think that have any impact for our um, international reputation and for our ability to access international markets? That's not something we have um, looked into to any great extent. I have to say we're very focused on solutions to reduce emissions mm. as opposed to measuring the impact on trade at this moment. I'm yeah. aware that there's work potentially starting to look at that, perhaps working with, with deer, but it's not something we mm. have any real evidence for at this moment in time. And you see, in relation to solutions, you know, you, you will appreciate probably more than me that that so these solutions uh, change. They change with emerging evidence and science. And we've also seen in relation, for example, Wales and Scotland, where they have adjusted their uh, their targets. So, would you agree with me that the current known solutions uh, will not be the they'll not be the, the current solutions? Maybe in a few years' time. And and to that regard, that we should be more ambitious in terms of the targets that we set. Science will always bring through new innovations and new solutions and the more that's invested in it, the, the greater possibility and, and efficacy and you know, potential for success of, of those solutions. So um, I need a crystal ball to, to answer that question completely, but um, I, from a science perspective, would be assured and, and would have confidence that there will be new solutions going forward. And I think in our paper we have also said that you know, it, it would be important, therefore, to have a mechanism which would keep targets and keep um, abilities and, and the, the Climate Change Action Plan under review to be able to make sure that you know, the state-of-the-art knowledge is recognised within the action plan, within the inventories and within the targets going forward. So um, I'd have confidence that there will be solutions coming forward and, and I think it is important to have a mechanism to make sure that those are recognised um, and that flexibility is built into the piece going forward to um, achieve the best that we can in, in the time frame given. Perfect. Thank you, Elizabeth. I'm going to move around the room. Rosemary? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, Rosemary. I got you. Yeah. for your comments. Just, I want to ask something. It's relation to carbon sequestration. Does agriculture get any recognition for carbon sequestration? By that I mean, you know, you have your grass growing on your farmland, you have your hedgerows and everything like that. Does agriculture, because we're talking about agriculture reading, reaching 82% by 2050, and is there any recognition of what they do get more from? Yes, Rosemary. Um, the, the improved grassland and, and grassland and crops are all recognised within what's called the Lulu CF inventory, yeah. the land use, land use change and forestry inventory. So, so yes, there is a recognition, and our science is very much trying to make sure that this, you know the, the information is fed into those inventories. Just how much carbon is being sequestered in our grasslands? Now, our current piece of work that we're working towards is how much is sequestered in our hedgerows. 
and making sure that you know those figures are fed into the infantry and are recognised as well. So forestry is recognised, grasslands and crops are recognised, and there are other areas that, that need to be recognised as well, but that work is underway. Okay, thank you. Um, um, I'm just thinking again of emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. You know, um, what new technology are you looking at that could improve, uh, improve these greenhouse gas emissions and measure them better? Sorry, Rosemary, just to measure them better, or are you asking about actual solutions? Technologies underway that you're looking at at the moment. Sure. So, so methane is one of the main greenhouse gases contributing to the overall piece. And to reduce methane emissions, you need to alter the rumen in, in the animal, to get mm -hmm. a bit te technical. And diet is a key function of that. So there are dietary additives um, coming through 3NOP, seaweeds, etc. And we're working with companies and in projects European-wide at the minute, um, north, south and east, west, to look at the efficacy of those feed additives. That's one solution. Other solutions include the reduction of waste on the farm, the detection of ill health earlier and, and intervening you know, to reduce ill health and reduce wastage on farm. And then you know, you go through to your slurry. So there's slurry additives to reduce methane emissions from slurry covering tanks and then anaerobic digestion as well to try and drive a circular um, nutrient use as well as harness the energy from slurry to potentially even um, feed the electricity grid. So, you know, those are all, it's a pipeline of solutions that we're looking at to both reduce emissions as well as sequester carbon. Yeah, and we're, and we're listening to our new electric cars. What progress has been made on agricultural machinery? You know, your silage, silage making machinery, it's that heavy, heavy machinery that an electric batteries. Yes, and, and I, I, I'd need to look into it a little bit more, Rosemary, but my understanding is that it is batteries, it's the size of the batteries and the battery power that, that's a, currently a huge challenge within that space, but there's a lot of robotization work going on across the University of Lincoln, which we are, are keeping a good eye on as well. So I think it's all, those are all developments that are coming forward. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, William? Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes, William, I got you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and can I thank you for your presentation. Uh, in relation to reaching that zero for 2045 and the dangers uh, that would pose to the agriculture sector and the possible reduction in livestock, at the end of the day, what overall difference, if we achieve 82% by 2050, the difference, uh, overall difference in the reduction of emissions in the UK, I would have thought would be very, very minimal. But even if Northern Ireland reached that zero by 2045, we would have damaged our industry, would have achieved very little without the right analysis in that. So, so we, we have not done the exact figures, number crunching behind what exactly the difference would be. Um, and I'd have to look to the CCC for those figures, which I don't have to hand, William. But my understanding is that it probably would make that much a difference um, in, in the grand scheme of things. And I, again, come back to the global argument as well, that it is global um, net zero that's as important as, as local net zero um, and again on the global scheme of things it definitely wouldn't make a, a big difference 
Uh, I think not only a big difference, but it would be so minute it wouldn't even be known. I think uh, our contributions have dropped by not four percent, so the price falls at days. But if we if we can reduce by eighty percent by twenty fifty, that would reduce that. In reality, what it is mean is that the UK for me that seems a sensible problem. Okay, thank you. Thank you, William. And uh, Patsy. Patsy. I can't. Uh, there we are. Sorry, I wasn't enabled there. Uh, my, my question is, uh, and I've read the. Uh, at some times in regard to the, the targets, uh, I've read the, the diplomatically worded uh, analysis of, of AFPI there around the time frame for those targets. Um, would, would you agree with the analysis of Lord Deven earlier that for us to meet the targets of um, net zero by 2050, would be extremely difficult, if not possible, impossible, as he saw to, to meet or match the two percent was going to be very difficult. So I, I just want to get this from from purely your purely scientific point of view because it is vitally important for a whole lot of people. Yes. Um, maybe Peter Yan has a comment on this as well, but but I'll go first. Yes, I am as I say I chaired a consortium of academics across the UK last year, which assessed the baseline of, of where we were with regards to livestock and, and net zero. And the consensus across that scientific base was it was going to be extremely challenging to reach um, net zero by 2050. Um, and, and indeed, whenever I've been you know, preparing for this, looking into the SRUC analysis, which very much contributed and fed into Lord Dibbons and the CCCs, 82% target, um, that as well did present a very challenging um, set of circumstances and, and even you know, looking to the, the Chuggis Mac, it does call out um, the very challenging um, circumstances that are needed and the huge investment that would be needed to, to achieve net zero um, within agriculture by 2050. So yes, I would concur and you know would have a lot of respect for, for CCC as a competent body around that strategic direction for the UK. And um, I would concur that it will be extremely challenging um, for agriculture to meet those in, in, um, emission reductions because of the biological nature of, of what we're working with. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that and for taking into the territory, Chair. Just if you could bear with me, as to how that challenge might manifest itself, or challenges might manifest themselves. I'm not meaning to get into the weeds of science, but you know we do have ruminant animals, and, and this is all on the assumption that Northern Ireland wants to retain its economic model, which is yeah. um, based on a ruminant industry on grassland production. So, so that is the assumption here. Um, so based on that assumption, the ruminant animal has a rumen which inherently produces methane, and you're never going. It's not going to be a ruminant animal if it doesn't do that. And whilst we can reduce those emissions significantly, and whilst we can capture carbon, I think again, based on the assumption that we want to retain the economic model, you know, the volume of the, the, the stock that we have in Northern Ireland is such that that. You know, there's a huge amount of reductions to be made and a huge amount of carbon to, to be sequestered. 
and um, therefore it makes it inherently very difficult to achieve in the longer run. Um, and, and will still take significant investment, both from government, industry, academia, um, to, to achieve those new solutions that are even needed going down the road to, to get to net zero. And, sorry, just in regard to the 82%, in regard to we'll say net zero, um, what is the scientific opinion of within the specific time frames of the, the doability or the possibility of doing you know, one alert even said it was extremely challenging, you get the 82%, but the other model or the other route, what's what's the sense on, on both of them? One is extremely difficult and extremely challenging. If, if one is not the 82%, what's the other? And, and I, we don't ha we don't have that analysis just to hand at this okay. time, but we, we just know that um, just from the current modelling, um, that it would be very challenging because, you know, what we've established is there's a big gap in, in unknown technologies that are needed um, to, to actually address the, you know, the huge gaps that we can see in front of us. So what's achievable at this moment in time is a question mark, but the, the ambition should be there. So the, the modelling is 82%. Are you likely to have any for the net zero, 100%? Sorry, say that again, Patsy. You have, you have modelling that will pick you up right based on the 82% target. Are you likely to have modelling, or is anybody working up modelling as to what the difficulties might be for 100% within the so, so, so the modelling that I'm referring to is SRUC, SRUC's yeah. work that fed into CCC, and SRUC have done a, a, a MAC for Scotland, and Chuggis have done their MAC for the South, and, and I think that is a piece of work that we now need to do and really need to inform the Climate Action Plan going forward. Okay, that's grand. Thanks very much indeed. Yeah, uh, thank you. And just before we just conclude, there's just, uh, I suppose, as, as a comment and a, a question as well, is that, you know, obviously, I've been reading the narratives, uh, both north and south, on, on this very issue. And, and bear in mind, we're in the same island, with the same farming patterns, the same setup, the same boundaries. Everything's the same, virtually the same, right? The narrative I'm reading from the south, uh, from Chagask and indeed, um, uh, the, the marginal abatement cost curve is that, you know, if 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 we implement the actions on the marginal abatement cost curve, you know, that well, sorry, if we don't implement many of these on farm actions, that livestock cuts may be um, may may have to happen. Whereas in the north, what I'm reading, this is this is. No, the livestock cuts is, is uh, almost the solution. It's, it's the first thing that's thrown up, which is causing uh, a great deal of anxiety amongst the farming community. And I'm also uh, reading from experts in the, in the south of Ireland, and I quoted one recently, Professor Alice Stanton, who says that there are already many farms, particularly in marginal areas, that are already carbon neutral. So how can you explain that differential on the one island? And also, how, when will we be in a situation where farmers will actually know whether their farming operations are carbon neutral or not? I'm sorry, Chair, we, we just lost you there the, for your last the, sentence or two. About the carbon, carbon neutral, you know, I've, I've read from other experts and academics who have said that far, there are many farms, particularly those in marginal areas, that are already carbon neutral, right? So when, when will we be in a situation where the department will be able to provide farmers with a calculator, like a, a modified version of the BOVIS calculator, where they will know whether their farm businesses are carbon neutral or not? 
Because if they don't know that there, how can they seriously plot ahead to move towards becoming carbon neutral? Yeah. So, um, f first of all, um, I suppose there are probably, and there could well be, individual farms out there that are carbon neutral and that's maybe talking back to their stocking densities that have got in the land, the amount of forestry they've maybe got in the land. So it's not impossible for farms, some farms in Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland to, to be carbon neutral depending on their specific circumstances. However, it, it, you know, in this whole game um, of what we're talking about is, is the national goal. And with regards to the calculator, there is a beef um, carbon calculator associated with the BOVIS tool at the minute. So that is currently available. And uh, indeed, some of the work that we're doing with LMC and NIMEA and, and others, etc., is using that to um, measure carbon calculations and, and with CAFRI as well. So that's actually being rolled out at the minute. But there are other carbon calculators, again, from SRUC, the AgriCalc tool, the Cool Farm Calculator. So there are a number of calculators there. Now, one of our jobs that we hope to do going forward is actually harmonise some of those calculators as well, and they can never be improved upon. So, um, so I think that that hopefully answers your um, carbon calculation question. Well, well, I think that's important to hear that from the department, you know, that there may well be farms out there already carbon neutral because the, the headlines that have been emerging from the climate change debate has less, left most farmers very worried because they believe that they have to cut at least 50% of their livestock rates. But if we're hearing from the department now that it may be the case that farms are carbon neutral, then that, that wouldn't be the case, and wouldn't it not? Well, and as I said, you know... I don't know the specific circumstances and some of those farms may have very low stocking densities and mm -hmm. um, so, so it is it's you know you, you could have bespoke situations that's fair enough but as I say this is the national mm -hmm. argument I think mm -hmm. we're talking about. But so livestock cuts isn't the immediate solution to this that there may be other solutions and in fact there's there may well be farms there, there clearly are farms already that, that are that are carbon neutral. It depends on the target that we want to meet and um, livestock numbers is, is an obvious mitigation here and now. There are other solutions in the pipeline, but you know, this will not be, there will not be one golden bullet to, to get to the uh, solution. It will be a combination and it all depends on the target and by when we need to get there as to what you would have to adopt. That's perfect. Well, hey, thank you very much um, for that this morning. Really helpful, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Peter, John, and uh, and Josephine. Really helpful. And uh, so we'll we'll be seeing you all again as this uh, uh, debate and other matters um, unfold. Thank you very much. And can I seek agreement no, from you. the from thank you from the committee to publish the AFP briefing paper on the web page? Yeah. And thank you for your attendance. Okay. So um, we're. Item 10, members, written briefing, the sea fish industry, coronavirus fixed cost game NA 2021, written briefing page 67. I want to advise members that the statutory rule provides the legislative basis for provision of financial support to the static gear fishing fleet to help the sector deal with the continued impact of COVID-19 on the market for shellfish species that is, that is that it lands, particularly crab and lobster. The SR places... Uh, SR 2165, which was made on the 12th of March uh, 2021. On the 27th of April, the examiner statute rules drew special attention to SR 65 on the grounds that it was ultra virus due to department citing incorrect primary powers. The SR enabled uh, payments to be made in respect of two eligible fishing vessels who had not received payment in respect of their fixed costs and the period before the examiner was reported the virus issue. Do members, uh, are members okay with the merits of this or anything you want to say? Yeah.
Fair enough, Lord. Okay, members. Okay, um, okay, members, we're at um, sorry. Uh, item 11, correspondence, page 82, your packs. I want to draw attention to correspondence at page 155, the Minister in response to committee's letter uh, to him regarding a support scheme for Glenelg farmers. The Minister advises that the draft legislation will come before the committee on the 1st of July. Um, are members content that we write to the Minister to welcome the development and, uh, mm -hmm. and to ask what measures will be in place to support farmers who are affected but did not submit force majeure applications um, um, uh, at the time? And um, Okay, that be right? Mm. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, and also there's two levels of compensation for the lowland and the uh, SDA land. Just give me a bit of clarity as to the, the two differential rates, okay? Um, okay, members, for work programme number 12, I want to refer members to for page, page 400. And then additional meetings, I want to remind members that there will be an additional virtual meeting and closed session this afternoon at 2.30 to discuss the investigation around the withdrawal of staff from the ports. Uh, a Starleaf invitation has already been issued for this meeting. There are several Thursday afternoon meetings set aside to allow time for the committee to consider a way forward and to agree the committee's report. Committee meeting has been arranged for Wednesday, 16th of June at 2.15 in order to progress the evidence session for the Climate Change Bill when we will receive oral briefing from the Climate NA and NAEL. Stakeholder event, uh, there will be a stakeholder event. Um, can I remember members who have, not, have yet to advise the clerk for availability for the two stakeholder events on the 17th of June to do so, a close of play today in order for staff to make the necessary arrangement for the event. And uh, Claire and Rosemary are the only ones so far have confirmed, but no doubt you will all be uh, rushing in after this. Okay? Uh, members, is there any other particular business you want to uh, uh, raise before we uh, close down this afternoon? Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Members, okay, the next meeting will take place, um, obviously we're later on this afternoon. This afternoon's closed session at half two, and then Thursday, 17th of June, with a virtual stakeholder event at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m., and the next regular meeting will be on Wednesday, 16th of June at 2.15, uh, and will be, uh, uh, will be a hybrid meeting streamed uh, on the Assembly website. So members, we're going to adjourn the meeting, and sure we'll catch up these in just over an hour's time, okay? Take care, everybody. Okay, Chair, thank this you. Good is luck. the Northern Same. Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 